and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whatever the case may be. Wherever you are around this rotating globe, um, if you're in China and listening, uh, it's already tomorrow. The future's coming up really fast. We're going to be talking about you guys in China momentarily. Uh, welcome, one and all. It's an extraordinarily interesting news night. There is breaking news on several fronts, as well as um, our <clears throat> previously scheduled guest, who's going to be taking us way back in time to the construction and apparently the embedding of an extraordinary mathematical and geometric code in the Great Pyramid of Egypt. And later in the evening, we're going to bring on our Enterprise Mission Imaging team, those that uh, are not doing other things tonight, and we're going to discuss the connections we've now demonstrated, discovered, astonishingly discovered between the Great Pyramid, what's on the Giza Plateau, and what's in the southern part of the Jezero Crater on Mars. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, you kind of look around and someone says, who ordered this? Well, it's kind of been in the cards for a while, and we will discuss all those relevancies. So let's get right to it. Um, Starting with the news, for those of you who are new to the show, we have something called Radio with Pictures. So if you want to actually follow along to the links and the images we're going to be discussing on your various devices, all of which have keys and screens, you go to theothersideofmidnight.com, which is our website, our homepage, and that will take you to the top as a banner, the Great Pyramid at Giza, key to our Mars-Earth connection. Uh, with my guest tonight, D. Arthur Guzner, and um, you click on that, that takes you to the guest page, to uh, Daryl's guest page, and if you click on Fast Links right under that banner, uh, click on mine, um, that will take you to my section of Radio Pictures. Item number one, this is a story, a very thorough story from the BBC that I debated last night about posting, and I decided to go with my old alma mater, CBS. So tonight, we've got a rather remarkable poster, both in Chinese and in English, which lists the occupational project timeline for the uh, uh, Zurong uh, rover, which is named after the fire god of Mars. Uh, Ron Gest- uh, Gerbron has been doing some research in that direction, and he's going to regale us with the as is kind of typical for the Chinese, confusing mythologies around this fire god. As I said last night with John Brandenburg, given the really incredible evidence, isotopic evidence of maybe one, if not more than one, ancient nuclear wars on Mars. I mean, the isotopic signatures are pretty definitive. Isn't it interesting that the Chinese decided to call their rover after the fire god of Mars. And is that a um, Emily Dickinson between the lines uh, tell its slant reference to potentially that they know a lot more about the ancient history of Mars than uh, has been publicly acknowledged? We will see. One thing you do want to make note of, or we do want to make note of, is that it has now been like 48 hours and change since the uh, Chinese successfully landed Uh, their spacecraft on Mars. How do we know this? 
because there's an awful lot of people over the world who have space programs with antennas that can listen to the booming signal from the Chinese broadcast systems and antennae on both the orbiter, which is still orbiting Mars, and acting as a relay for the uh, rover on on the ground. And from the rover itself, they can send signals directly back from the little high-gain antenna, the dish antenna, on the rover. We know they can do this because telemetry was received on Friday evening, um, uh, Saturday morning, uh, uh, Beijing time. And we know that the solar panels unfolded. We know the antennas were raised. We know the cameras are up and running. They have a, you know, mast arrangement, kind of like our own rovers. And so we know all that is going on. The thing we do not know, the hell they're seeing. Because unlike their previous missions, like the Chang 3 and 4 missions to the moon, which are kind of the basic chassis of the the wrong rover, they have released zero data and information, particularly images from the rover. And it's been now almost two days. Now, if you read some of the private websites and blogs that follow the Chinese space program, which I um, uh, actually have tapped into, and I should probably put that link up there for everybody so you can all kind of eavesdrop these these sources have good sources inside China that kind of like uh, sources of JPL that leak, you know, ex officio so that you get an inside look. Nobody's leaking anything. So as John Brandenburg and I discussed this afternoon uh, when he called me briefly saying, what do we hear about the Chinese? <clears throat> I said, John, nothing, nothing. And it's been 48 hours and it's really kind of mysterious. Now, the um, the people that are kind of looking in to the Chinese operation are saying, well, this is because they only have one spacecraft to act as a relay. They have the same limited bandwidth problems that NASA has, and NASA has like three or four orbiting spacecraft that it can relay signals from the rover to orbit to Earth, whereas the Chinese only have one. And uh, they actually changed the orbit of the TN1 mission, the Questions of Heaven orbiter, which is still orbiting Mars, so that it's now in the correct to fly over the uh, Utopia Planitia landing site. We know they've landed. We know where they've landed. We just don't know what they're seeing. And, of course, the big, big question, which I discussed with John last night, When they finally send down their first picture, what will we see? Like with Perseverance, will the first color picture be a stunning reddish Mars with a gorgeous Bonstellian blue sky? Or will it be as all the later images from Perseverance and the ones from Curiosity before that, and the ones from Opportunity before that, and the ones from Spirit before that, and the ones from Sojourner before that, and the um, uh, Sagan Station. Will they be this kind of awful, putrid butterscotch that NASA seems to think that Mars looks like? It's going to be a very interesting test as to the political independence of China All the folder, all about geopolitics on Earth, notwithstanding, because if they come out with the real skies of Mars, which are blue, we'll know one thing. 
that they really are independent. If they come out with butterscotch skies, then we know that all the pretenses and all the posturing and all the nonsense about geopolitics between us and China now going on down here on Earth is all theater. Because upstairs in the solar system with human history, where it really matters, they are all functioning as one conspiratorial team dedicated to keeping most people on planet Earth in the dark. It's going to be an extraordinary moment when we finally get images from Mars from the Chinese from the first independent landing other than the U.S., other than NASA, on the planet Mars ever in modern history. And what that first picture looks like when we see the horizon and the skies above it is going to tell us reams about the future to unfold. Which segues perfectly to item number two in my radio with pictures. Tonight, if you were um, had the good fortune to watch 60 Minutes, you saw a really remarkable, and I would say historical event. You saw a 10, 15 minute segment of 60 Minutes, which was absolutely straight-laced journalism, balanced, had appropriate questions, had a lot of different, you know, first-time actors, people who were involved in the actual actualities of the events, and it left you with anticipation of an official document to be released by the U.S. Senate within the next two weeks. Now, we just happen to have the good fortune here at the other side of midnight to have a man in Washington, Steve Bassett. So without further ado, Steve Bassett, who is current head and founder of the Paradigm Research Institute, Steve, you watched uh, 60 Minutes. You've been trying to get this disclosure business on track and, you know, current for the last, what is it, 30, 40 years. What was your impression of 60 Minutes tonight and where we are in UFO history? Four years, Richard. I'm not that old, but uh, very good. Look, for, first, for, let me just say this. If I were NASA, I would be sweating bullets over every single photo the Chinese pull off of Mars, right? And let's leave it at that. Um, yeah, four years ago, almost to the day, Laura Logan on 60 Minutes interviewed space entrepreneur billionaire Robert Bigelow, and he told her to her face, there's extraterrestrials here. Not once, but twice. So we'll call that the first shoe drop. The second shoe dropped tonight. 60 Minutes engaged the issue again. And based on what was on the show, they could have done this show a year ago, two mm-hmm. years ago. Why did they wait so long? I'm speculating it was because the political situation had changed. And so they made their move. All right. Now, we don't have time. We only have a short time here. We don't have time to, re- to review the whole history of this. Uh, but they dealt with the ATIP program. They, they brought on key people like Madeline and Elizondo and, and – um, uh, others, Marco Rubio. But what I'll do here quickly is I'll try to provide your listeners uh, my take on some things on there which they may not have gotten. In other words, uh, interpretation they may not have gotten. There's a number of them. First of all, Marco Rubio's presence was very important. By going on the show, Marco Rubio basically absolutely 
fully was fully in. Oh, he's, he, he has married his career now to ufology. Yes. Right. He he put the language in the intelligence bill, appropriations bill, calling for some information to come back. Totally safe thing to do. No risk. He wasn't running for president uh, for senate, um, and it wasn't. It was okay. He did that. Got a lot of pre- got him a lot of press, a lot of positive press. I'm sure he paid close attention. And the issue has continued to advance over the last six months. And so he goes on 60 Minutes, puts it right out there. Now he's locked in. That's extremely important. Point two, he mentions that the report that he requested to be put together will be unclassified. There was a lot of talk mm. about is that going to be secret this and secret that. No, it's unclassified. He said it, and that's going to be. Now, there may be some classified stuff, but obviously there's going to be plenty of unclassified stuff, and clearly that's going to be reviewed, all right? He said that. And he also said that report's coming next month, which means it's going to be a lot harder. For <laughs> that's only two people. weeks away. Well, well, yeah, but I think, I think the deadline in terms of the bill, 180 days, is around June 15 or so. So we'll assume they're going to run it to the end of the deadline. The point is, is that it's going to be very hard for anybody over at ONI or DOD or CIA or whatever to uh, come up with some reason. Well, you know, uh, there's a there's a virus going around and a couple of guys are out sick. We need three more months. I don't think so. Even more importantly, by going public like that, he basically is the idea that they're going to come up with a big platter of nothing burgers like they have for the last 74 years. Not going to happen. They're going to have to deliver some goods. I don't. I'm not saying it's going to be saucers and uh, you know uh, uh, maps to the underground bases, but they're going to deliver some serious stuff, and that's great. So that's coming. So that was very, very important to see have Rubio say those things. Um, in terms of Mellon, very important. Mellon, of course, also is now pretty. He's done interviews. Now Rogan is one thing; sixty minutes is another. All right. By doing these interviews, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm really involved in this. And if you listen to what he said, uh, it's confirming what I've been saying now for some time. Mellon and Elizondo and possibly Steve Justice have been negotiating hearings in front of the, the Senate and House committees very, very soon. One of the things he said was interesting is he surreptitiously uh, got the, um, the videos from the Pentagon. I thought that was kind of fun. Uh, Elizondo confirmed that he's the one that declassified them, and they were declassified. And so Mellon didn't have to surreptitiously get anything. And by the way, if you take something surreptitiously from the Pentagon, you know what happens? <laughs> you, you wind up in Leavenworth. Like da- well, first you get interviewed for five days very intensely. Why he, what he's doing that is, is very cool. Essentially, look. There's people inside the Pentagon that are supporting them. This is not an official Pentagon program. There are plenty of people in the military intelligence complex who would like to cut this thing off at the knees. They don't want this. They don't want disclosure to ever happen. In other words, they have their enemies, and there's a lot of diplomacy here. And so by saying I surreptitiously taking it, it takes the onus off uh, the Pentagon being labeled why did you hand that to, to Mellon? How could you do that? What's going on here? So it takes them off the hook a little bit. There's a lot of that going on, but I don't think it was surreptitious. I think he got it, and he did what he was supposed to do and took him to the New York Times. Elizondo pretty much said the same things that he said before, but strongly, right, very strongly. They, as usual, walked all the witnesses, the pilots, the, they walked the issue right up to the line of <laughs> there's ETs here and stopped. 
Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Four years. Watching this, my reaction was, how can any of these people, serious people paid by the taxpayer, hold the idea that we have some secret technology that the Chinese have developed or the Iranians or the Russians or the U.S.? Because if anybody had this, they would have cleaned our clock 70 years ago and we'd all be living under some other regime. I have the answer for that, Dick. It's pretty straightforward. The goal of the TTSA, now, of course, the three key people have left the TTSA, which was necessary, from the get-go, the intention of this inside group in the Pentagon that knew that the truth embargoes days had to end was to get the congressional hearings because congressional hearings end the embargo. It will allow the president to make the announcement once sufficient evidence has been presented. And so everything that's going on is to get those hearings. And so talking extraterrestrials, Specifically saying they're off-world, all of this is not conducive to convincing and allowing the committee chairs and members to sign on to, let's get those witnesses in, let's hear what they have to say. And that has been the case from day one. And so whether you're TTSA or witnesses, by and large, you just don't want to go there. I don't think there was anybody on that show that doesn't know there's ETs here. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a single member of the TTSA that doesn't know there's ETs here. There's so many people in government that know there's ETs here. It's, it's really kind of funny. But, but saying it doesn't help. Now, in a sense, they're lying. But if, if, even if you want to call it that, it's for a very important per, a, a purpose. No hearings, no disclosure. And so they're moving forward. They're making it increasingly harder for the press to stay out of it. And they're making it as easy as possible for the congressional people to hold the hearings, which is another reason why it's always cast in a national security framework. Now, some people say, oh, that means it's going to be a threatened thing. They're going to say the aliens are coming to get us and it's all a false flag. No, no, no. If you're going to get members of Congress or committee chairs to hold hearings, it ain't going to be about how we're going to build the ET embassy to greet them when they come. Right. It's got to be about something that's politically safe. Well, it's a legitimate national security matter. Obviously, they turn our nukes off. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you cast it in that light, makes it very safe and appropriate. And so it'll be national security. The witnesses will all be military people, maybe a few uh, people who work in classified defense contractor programs. Why? Because military witnesses at a vest, they've already taken an oath when they signed up. Then they take another oath when they sit down at at the committee table. Plus, we know about them. There's no mysteries here. You know when they were served, where they served, what their record is, what medals they have. A civilian can turn up with a cockamamie story, and you have no idea who it is. So military witnesses are the absolute best. I know this because I had a bunch of them at the citizen hearing on disclosure I put on back in 2013. All right. And so military witnesses, committee, national security issues, and then let the testimony begin. And once there's enough testimony on the table, could be five different committees over three weeks, then the president can come forward and say, I've been listening just like you have. I've been watching like you have. Wow, very convincing. I've talked to some key uh, congressional leaders. I've talked to my top advisors in the national uh, security area. And we have actually come to the consensus. This testimony confirms an extraterrestrial presence. And I'm confirming that to you today. And everybody is going, oh, That's very appropriate because everybody watched the testimony together. That's why there have been eight efforts or more to get hearings going all the way back to Donald Trump. Well, you know this is going to be – you know the hearings, wherever they start, will be covered 24-7. 
it'll be the watched hearings at all time. I'm going to put the audience between 300 and million and seven, 800 million people. Hmm. Do we know? Which... Can you imagine being a committee chair uh, yeah. on a nonpartisan issue? Yep. Where you don't have to play the stupid games. Yep. yep. Uh, however, however, Rubio did say something interesting. He said, there's some of my colleagues who are really interested. And then mm-hmm. he said, there's some of my colleagues who are just laughing and giggling about this. So there mm-hmm. will be opposition. No, no. Just because you're laughing and giggling doesn't mean you're going to be opposition. And let's mm-hmm. be clear. As you know, Dick, if a committee chair wants a hearing, there will be a hearing, right? If a bunch of committee members say, we don't want to do it, he'll say, tough titty. Okay. okay? You're they our, call the hearings, right? You're our man in Washington. Yeah. Which committee do you think is going to take the lead on this? It's obvious. Senate Intel. Okay. It's already taken the lead, and it's the appropriate one. And it's kind of cool because you see Warner got briefed along with Rubio, right? But Rubio was the one that, that put it, the language in, but I imagine Warner signed off on it as well, and he stepped back. He let Rubio mm. have the stage, okay? Which was now, politically course, brilliant. Yeah. Now Warner is the chair, and so when that, that first uh, hearing takes place, and it, it, it's the one that gets the ball rolling. Uh, because there's no way you're going to do a one-day hearing on this. Right? Oh, no, Those no, days no, are no, over. no, no, Rubio and Warner will be, will be chairing that together. It will be nonpartisan. They will be getting the evidence, working together, and the American people are going to look and say, oh, God, I've been waiting for this so long. And everybody wins, the Democrats, the Republicans, the committee chairs, the DOD, its military witnesses, the military, its military witnesses, and, of course, the president – since he's handed the perfect way to finally confirm the ET presence without causing all kinds of chaos and not having to, to face a million questions. Well, why didn't you tell us sooner? And, and, and what did you know? And when did you know all that kind of crap? Hey, that's what's going to happen. I've been predicting mm-hmm. it now for months. The only thing that's really – it could have happened a little sooner. The only the thing that principally held it up besides the odd insurrection was uh, <laughs> the COVID situation. The yeah. COVID thing uh, you know, it kept going. But now the vaccination schedule is pretty predictable, and so very soon the ability to bring witnesses in, hold full hearings, top full audience is there, and they're going to do it. They can't wait on this. As, as this kind of press emerges, the longer they hold it off, the more people in here, what's going on. Well, uh, just it, like it, the New York over. Times was the gateway yeah. to credibility in terms of mm-hmm. the print press, in terms of you know, everybody reads the Times before they do their stories on television. 60 minutes in the broadcast arena is equivalent. So the fact that this tonight was handled absolutely straight down the middle of the runway by 60 minutes. When do you think we might hear about hearings? A couple weeks after I the think hearings can happen by uh, will be definitely possible by July. Uh, something it could pop up at any time. And there's a little something else that's about to happen, too. CBS now owns this issue. There are three networks. Well, there's four <laughs> networks, okay? Not the news networks. Forget, I'm talking about the network, ABC, NBC. T- CBS owns this issue. Now, Fox News is, con- is, is, is in there, no question, but that's primarily simply because of one person, Tucker Carlson. But let's take the other two networks, the big ones, NBC and ABC. They do not even have a ticket to the party. They are out side looking in, and I'm thinking the executives of those two major news operations are saying, what in the hell is going on here? This may be the biggest story in history, and we've got nothing, absolutely nothing. And so I predict 
there's going to be an EP coverage war starting mm-hmm. very soon between these three networks about who can get the most stuff out the door. Feel, feel pretty good about that, Richard. Watch for it. Fascinating. Okay, I think we've covered the waterfront. Um, obviously, you'll keep us surprised if anything develops sooner than we are projecting. I have a feeling July may be much later than you're than then is going to really happen. Because remember, an awful lot of people, constituents, want something that's bipartisan, where we're not sniping at each yeah. other, and which means something to everybody as confirmation of an ET presence would inevitably mean. Yeah. Uh, July is, I said, when I think about the soonest it can happen. A, an announcement of some kind indicating they will happen could happen at any moment. That's what I'm thinking, the, the announcement, and then everything else follows from that. Hey, Steve, thank you so much. Um, My pleasure. We will, we will call you again, or you can right. call us if something breaks. That was, uh, Steve, Happy to do so. that was Steve Bassett, who is uh, head and founder of the Paradigm Research Institute. And as I said, I've known Steve for... A long, 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 long time, and I'm actually rather gratified that this is moving in the direction it's moving because he has put in so many countless unpaid and unsanctioned and un, uh, you know, accredited hours trying to push this effort of disclosure for literally decades. So um, it's it, it's kind of nice to see it taking the appropriate turn. Uh, moving on in our our news coverage before we bring on our guest tonight. Item number three, um, if you want to read some of this stuff, uh, as I said, item number two is the 60 Minutes Overtime page. If you go there, you'll see tonight's report with additional footage that they did not have time to put on the air. And on the same page, just to the right of the UFO Pentagon story, is the NASA Perseverance story from CBS's perspective. And I thought we would... uh, point you to the page as opposed to the specific stories because there are a couple of items on that page that are worth your attention. Item number three, um, the Pentagon uh, is confirming through this UFO footage um, the, the objects that apparently are defying the current laws of physics. And there's a bit of a backstory as to some footage uh, that was provided by one UFO researcher which did not make it into tonight's uh, uh, 60 Minutes uh, interviews. And the story there is kind of interesting. In other words, are they saving more for future editions of 60 Minutes on this subject? If I was producing 60 Minutes, that's what I would do, not put everything in your one basket. Item number four. Uh, There's a very interesting story, rather in-depth story, in the uh, New Yorker. Um, which kind of tracks all the way back to the beginnings uh, of, of this uh, uh, set of developments from uh, some other insiders' perspectives, including uh, talking, uh, you know, about people that have been involved for many, many years. In addition to uh, Steve Bassett, we have Stephen Greer, who uh, uh, took to the lectern in 2001 at the National Press Club and, uh, you know, began the kind of public... <clears throat> Um, discussion after decades of this, uh, you know, entire uh, controversy, which has only gotten worse over the years. And you might want to read that backstory because it gives you some more uh, information to kind of fill in uh, the blanks. Well, we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. 
So I'm going to hold off in introducing my uh, my guests until we come back after the break. Um, I would like to um, uh, presage uh, what we're going to talk about tonight. In that our guest just fortuitously happens to have a very interesting background himself in national security. And so one of the first things uh, I'm going to ask him is what he thinks of these developments and uh, who knows where uh, that will take us. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. that this organized crime system has been able to monopolize the media and has been able to uh, control the government and control perception on a wide scale is because it's the banks at the core and they've been given the privilege of creating money out of thin air using a technique called fractional reserve banking. Where the central banks backstop the money center banks to create money out of thin air. So when you go to get a loan, whether it's a mortgage or a car loan, that's not depositor money that they're loaning you. Uh, they just credit your account with some dollar credits and you're off to the races. And then you spend the rest of your life paying interest on a mortgage that somebody created out of thin air. And that's the reason why the bank is the largest building in every city on the planet because they're making outrageous profits by getting to loan money at interest that they created out of thin air. This is Etienne de la Boissy Squared, the author of Government, the Biggest Scam in History, Exposed. And some of my favorite conversations are the ones that I have on the other side of the news. With Timothy, Netta, and Kentia. Thank you for doing what you do and providing the service that you provide.
Welcome back, everyone. Sunday night, May 16th, 2021. My guest this morning is uh, D. Arthur Guzner. The D stands for Daryl, so I'm going to call him Daryl. He never goes in public by Arthur. But he publishes under D. Arthur Guzner, so you're going to want to go to the other side of midnight and the guest page and scroll down to his um, uh, bio, actually, under the banner. You can also just click on bios and He's the first one on the runway, so click on that. Right next to um, his picture there with a gorgeous little dog who unfortunately is no longer with us, Um, there's a website, Galaxy Quest Books, and uh, Daryl has written five books that kind of encompass some of the things we're going to be talking tonight. So without further ado, let me uh, give him an appropriate intro. He, He was determined to serve his country at the age of 16. And so back then, which was some time ago, he borrowed his brother's draft card and joined the U.S. Army. After three years of honorable service, he then sought an education at California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo, where he earned degrees in chemistry and physics. Darrell's subsequent 20-year career was as a physicist for the United States Navy, where he specialized in marine warfare. At the end of the Cold War, he turned his attention to marine research and exploration, where he is focused on the search for and recovery of historical shipwrecks. His experience of submarine warfare background influenced his books, Guardian Force, Earth Guardian, Guardian Probe, Guardian Strike, and Guardian Thunder. Do you detect a theme in that? Anyway, um, D. Arthur Guzner and his belated yellow Labrador, Limo, Currently, he lives in Cambria on the central coast of California. And Daryl, welcome to the other side of midnight. Good evening, Richard. I am truly honored to be here tonight, and particularly on this night, which is a momentous night based upon what you have just revealed. And I've been sitting here listening to the report of what has come out with regards to the release of information on UFOs. And I'm delighted. It's long overdue. And I really mean that. Uh, I've only seen fundamentally one UFO in my life, but I have followed the UFO phenomenon most of my life. And it's just wonderful to see the truth finally coming out. Well, without telling any tales out of school, in terms of your national security background, there's a whole class of this phenomenology called USOs unidentified submerged objects. Have you either seen one or have you encountered individuals in your wide travels and, you know, among colleagues and people in the armed forces and at various levels of the Department of Defense, have you ever heard or talked to people about unidentified submerged objects? I have come across stories uh, in my lifetime which were observations of ships that dove into the sea and then came back up and out of the sea. And that was considered to be something you don't talk about. Uh, so we don't and didn't talk about it. And um, I don't know that it's, any of that data has been released yet, but it recently has been said that some of the F-18 pilots observed this phenomenon of ships diving into the sea and coming back out of it. 
Historically speaking, it's not a new thing. Uh, if you recall the book of the damned by Charles Fort, mm. uh, he just, he described a circular a wheel within a wheel, much like Ezekiel did, and it was seen both in the air and one of the reports in his book, uh, Book of the Damned, Charles Ford relayed a story of how a sea captain reported watching this thing, that circular thing with radiant light, cross beneath his ship as well as overhead. And the descriptions provided by uh, Ford in his report were really wonderful because it gave in the rotation, the angular rotation of the wheel within the wheel. And it was a very good uh, good description. I pondered that for quite some time. There was another report in his book that described exactly the same ship that was seen on the east coast of the United States hundreds of years after Ezekiel's thought, of course, a thousand years or so. And it was seen off the east coast to hover for quite a while, and then it, poof, with a flash of light, disappeared, as if it had gone between time. Um, And I think time has a whole lot to do with what's happening here. It's an area that we know little about, and at least I know little about. Uh, It's an incredible story. It's a story which catches us up in our ancient histories. Uh, It catches us up in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, as I said. It catches us up in stories like the Apostle Paul stated that angels are walking among us, so the E.T. could be among us. Uh, how are you translate this material? I don't know. But the pyramid that we I talked about is certainly an anomaly, and it's a spectacular, I think. Does that answer your question? Oh, more than, but at least so many other questions. For instance, my personal uh, you know, theory, hypothesis, as to the reason for both the extensive cover-up of the UFO phenomenon for, as Steve said, you know, over 74 years, and the equally bizarre and very anti-scientific cover-up of the reality of extraterrestrial ruins all over the solar system with specific, you know, focus on what's waiting on Mars, I think traces back to a common theme. And appropriately enough, here you are tonight to discuss the theme, which is somehow these two phenomena, which are connected at some point in this model, ultimately intersect with the history, the genesis, and whatever happened in our ancient and perhaps not so ancient human past. And I think that is the primary reason why all of these subjects have been taboo for literally decade after decade, because it's not aliens, it's not an other out there that we're going to encounter when this unfolds. It's in fact a reflection of who we are, the trail we got from there to where we are tonight, the suppressed history. And it's got to be one hell of a story of how we wound up on this little blue green planet thinking that we're all alone, when in fact it's just the opposite, and it's somehow this entanglement of these phenomenon with the identity of Homo sapiens sapiens, which I think is the prime driver for the extraordinary energies and efforts expended. What do you think? I agree. Uh, I do agree. There has been a reason for it, 
And as for the cover-up, it's been solid, absolutely solid. As you recall, in June of 1947, we had the sightings of a group of UFOs over Mount Rainier. It was only a matter of a week or two after that sighting in June that on July the 3rd, there was a report of a crashed UFO near a SAC base in New Mexico and that the Air Force at that time put out a open message that we had captured a UFO. Uh, that was withdrawn, as was the newspaper article uh, in the newspaper that had come out just before that. And I think that changed the world. I really do. And this is my opinion. I can't tell you because I wasn't in the halls of Congress. <laughs> uh, and I don't know what happened in the halls of Congress. But I, could, I, I choose my data carefully. And if you take July the 3rd of 1947 and then spin forward and look how many weeks it took to do the finalization and ratification of the 1947 National Defense Act, which reorganized our military completely, created the United States Air Force, gave foundation to the first Secretary of Defense, uh, and then just restructured everything to what? Not a Department of War, but a Department of Defense. Now, I don't have the answers as to what happened in that group. I don't know. But I know one thing. We had just finished World War II. We just dropped two nukes, and we'd seen the effect of those two nukes. I also know the fact that when they crawled across the wreckage of that UFO, and was there a UFO? All these decades later, they say, no, 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 no. You, uh, Roswell is a joke, is it? There's a book out there, and I didn't write it. But those who did, did so with data. And that's called Witness to Roswell. It's a wonderful book, and I don't believe anybody with an open mind could read that book and not walk away saying there was a UFO at Roswell. And who wrote, and, and who wrote Witness to Roswell? Oh, there are four or five authors, ah. and one of them was an astronaut. So my point being – I'm sorry. I can't give you that off the top of my head. Well, this is where we but introduce my, Brian, who is, yeah. who is Daryl's AI. Actually, he's his nephew. <laughs> but uh, Daryl is blind. So what the research he's done and what he's going to be just discussing tonight should be viewed in that light that it's uh, overcoming, you know, some handicaps that ordinary researchers do not have to overcome. But, Brian, you can, in your copious spare time there, look up who wrote Witness to Roswell, because I'd like to give people full background so they can go and find this book uh, themselves if uh, you think it's perhaps the best chronology of what happened at Roswell. I absolutely endorse it. It's a marvelous book as far as detail. I mean, you, I don't believe you can read the evidence that those people provide in that book and walk away saying, no, it didn't happen. This is a fraud. I don't think that's possible. Not to an open-minded uh, analytical person. Brian? Mm -hmm. yes. let, me, let me introduce my nephew. Brian Gusner, and it's Gusner. Brian is my nephew. He's the eldest uh, son of my beloved sister who is no longer with us. And he's been kind enough over the last year and a half or so to help me. And I've been very grateful for that help. Hi, Brian. You. How are you doing? We're doing great. Okay, if you, if, you can, if you can look that up and then at an appropriate time interject uh, who the authors were. And I presume it's available on Amazon and other yes, good bookstores, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, Daryl, let's let's swing into what we're going to talk about tonight because I have been, and I can't remember when, always fascinated by this thing, this enigma by the Nile, the Great Pyramid. And I've read Piazzi Smith, and I've read Tompkins, and I've read probably if I put all the books I've read on the Great Pyramid, they would stretch almost to the moon. Uh, I, I think you're kind of similar. How did you wind up going from the U.S. Navy operations, national security work, et cetera, et cetera, and you know, service in submarines, to marine archaeology, to the Great Pyramid. There must be a <laughs> hell of a story there, and we have time. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, it's, it sort of came as a love of the ocean, and uh, when I was 17 years old, I found myself on the USS Sturgis, which is a United States Army troop ship, crossing the Atlantic for a two and a half year stint in uh, Europe and it was a hurricane. And so for three days and three nights, I was in that hurricane. And like, like a 17 year old kid that has any brains, <laughs> I found an access way to climb up through the, the, you know, the passageways and up through the, the chutes and get up on deck, oh, which was God. absolutely violating every rule in the book. Yes. And I found myself on a little catwalk just below the bridge and there was a little rail that I could put my feet against and brace my back against the bulkhead and hold onto the handrail. And I rode that ship down the face of a huge cliff, down across the valley below, the face, the rising face of the next oncoming wave, which was taller than the ship, and watched the bow of the ship plow into that wave. And then we broke through. Well, when we plowed through that wave, tons and tons of seawater crashed upon the foredeck came aft, hit the bulkhead, and went left and right. And I sat there I sat there for maybe two or three waves, and suddenly even my 17-year-old brain said, this is not very smart. And at that point, I opened the hatch and went back down and dogged it behind me. I never told anybody that story until tonight, I guess, except for a couple of family members. But sitting there, at, at, I guess my back against that bulkhead at 17, I had the impression of, a, of an enraged ocean winds at you know, nearly 100 miles an hour, sleet, rain, and a ship literally faced into those oncoming waves. And we were there for three and a half days riding that thing. And it was, it was a momentous time in my life. I've never forgotten it. And I've always loved the Navy. And, and I've always have loved the, the Army, too, for that matter. They, they were very good to me. Uh, and also the, the fact that we um, well, anyway, just I do. And so that is what brought me through. Uh, when I graduated from Poly, um, my, like I say, you know what, I studied. And I, was, I only took one job interview. And I was offered a job to work with Admiral Rickover. And I turned it down. Oh, my God. And the, the man says, why? He says, I can't tell you, Daryl. He says, you're making a terrible mistake to go where you're going. It's a production station. You don't belong in a production station. And I said, yeah, but it's the only underwater tracking range in the world. And I want to go there to work with APL University of Washington. And he thought I was crazy, but I went up to interview with him, and, and he offered me the job, and it was a beautiful job. And I really brilliant GS rating they were offering me. And I thanked him very much for, the, for, the, for that offer. But I did decline it, and I did go to work at that no, no one ever heard of production station, and it changed my life, literally changed my life. And uh, I had the opportunity to work with brilliant officers, such as Captain Null, 
who was the chief of staff, submarine forces Pacific, and he directly directed me to do some work for him personally. And I found forces Pacific. And Captain Null was just an incredible officer. And so I started it. And that's how I got myself into testing with submarines. And that's how I ended up developing the very first successful, totally integrated submarine fire control system that had ever been developed. And it, it changed the Navy in, in ways I don't, I don't want to discuss. But, mm. but the point was it was challenging for a young, young engineer. And I spent 20 years working, and I did have a chance to work with the Canadians, the Australians, and also the United States Navy for all those years. And I loved my work. I really did. I loved the ocean. I loved my work with the government. But at a certain point, my eyesight was going, and I knew that. So I retired. I went to my farm. I had a 200-acre farm in upstate New York, and I settled into private study. And that's where I got involved with maritime studies and other studies, historical in nature. And do you know, the, let me interrupt, do you know Clive Cussler? I'm aware of the name, but no, I've never met him. Many years ago, when he was involved, I'm trying to remember now what the research was. Um, you know, he writes all these incredibly interesting, you know, daring do, uh, cutting edge exploration slash, you know, uh, skullduggery novels about marine research and oceanography right. and all that. For those in the audience, there may be one or two who don't know who Clive Custler is. He was involved in something peripheral to the discovery of a set of ancient ruins a half a mile down off the west coast of Cuba. I remember that. And there was a, a Canadian researcher and her husband who had a contract with Castro's government to basically catalog, I think, shipwrecks, Spanish shipwrecks uh, around the periphery of Cuba uh, for whatever reason, safety or marking them in case treasure hunters tried to, you know, take the stuff or Cuba wouldn't get a bonus or something like that. And it was in the process of this research that they tripped over accidentally with an ROV uh, 2,500 feet down off the west coast of Cuba, this set of amazing geometric ruins on the floor of the Gulf of Mexico. And the, the problems in terms of tectonics of how something could have been on the surface and then is 2,500 feet down, that's one of the myths. There are plazas, there are streets. It looks like an entire sunken, extraordinary ET base, if you can imagine, you know, sci-fi projecting with pyramids and, you know, swooping uh, architecture and all that buried, you know, half a mile beneath the ocean. Well, Robin, my uh, significant other who's no longer with us, got the bright idea one day, considering that we both were devotees of Custler's work, to call him up and try to get him on the case because um, the uh, researchers had tried to make a deal with the National Geographic and things were going along swimmingly, pun intended, and then suddenly all communication was cut off. And I had a personal experience with the geographic and the Mars uh, research I've been doing in a very similar vein. So I was, I was prepared this was going to happen because, again, like there are cover-ups of 
ancient extraterrestrials, ancient archaeology, both here and elsewhere in the solar system, there seems to be a cover-up of things that are underwater that we're not supposed to know about. So Robin was actually, she was very good at this. She was able to get Clive Cussler's home phone number, his cell phone. (laughs) And we called him out of the blue. And I have never, I mean, I have a reasonable background, you know, Cronkite, CBS, NASA, etc. I have never been so cut off at the knees by an ostensible just author as we were in trying to talk to Clive Cussler about these ruins off Cuba. And the conversation went fine until we introduced what we wanted him to look into, and it was like he had been struck by lightning. He literally abruptly just terminated the call, and we could never get hold of him again, indicating to me that not only does the cover-up extend to outer space, it extends to the deep ocean. Have you looked at pursuing, given your you know, submarine background, have you looked at pursuing with maybe people at Woods Hole or people at uh, Scripps or whatever, what's down there waiting off Cuba to be reborn? Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I have come across similar stories. Uh, there's a story that was told among the sports divers that I met of such a pyramid off of another island in the Caribbean, which I frequented. And uh, I never went to it myself, but I talked to a number of people who had dove on it, and they tended to be very closed mouth about it. Um, but I do believe that it was there. Um, work I did was basically um, on the east coast of Florida and also in the Dominican Republic. And uh, I was fundamentally looking for, when you look for something like that, you're out doing surveys using magnetometers and bottom scanning sonars and things of this nature. Mm -hmm. And you have a goal, a target you're looking for, but you're also looking for anything else that might come up. And I can say truthfully that we never came across the pyramid. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm trying to remember this couple's name because I actually talked to both of them and they dropped off the radar. It's like somebody had warned them, do not get involved in this. It's a taboo subject. And they had no, resources to fight, you know, governments or whoever is in in charge of this cover-up. Let me, going back to something we said earlier, and then I want to return to the archaeology. Do you have the feeling from the people you talk to in the defense establishment that once this process is a little further along, once there are congressional hearings, it's going to be the literal breaking of the dam and an extraordinary fusillade of stories and people and witnesses and and uh, you know tales of extraordinary encounters are going to come gushing forth because everybody's been kind of waiting for this disclosure moment to finally happen. I can't say that I have a feeling towards what the government will do about anything. To be honest with you, now, I was not uh, in government. I'm, I'm I'm talking the rank and file, the people in the services who have been muzzled for decade after decade of things they've encountered and witnessed and seen. In, in truth, it was something that if you discussed, you did, did not discuss in specificity. You just didn't. It, it was, number one, tarnish your career. Uh, you were thought to be, quote, a nut, close quote. 
but the point was is some things did happen and you just went on your way. But at times, if you were, shall we say, by the swimming pool between operations, we, you would discuss something like that, but not officially. Hmm. Okay, well, um, I, uh, my dad was in the Navy. I was not. But I have this feeling that there is such a pent-up, shall we say, interest in this subject that uh, all hell is going to break loose when the official chains of secrecy are released. But that could be just me, and so we will. No, see. sir. I'll tell you what, uh, <laughs> hold, hold it there. We're, we're at the it top. It is you, of, and it is everybody else too. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is uh, Daryl Arthur Gusson. He is a former naval U.S. naval uh, specialist, um, underwater uh, warfare. Um, I believe nuclear weapons kind of come into this at some point. Uh, apropos our discussion with uh, John Brandenburg last night. And we'll get back to all of that and, of course, his uh, expertise in archaeology, ancient archaeology, and we will get to the Great Pyramid. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, May 16th, 2021. My guest this morning is D. Arthur Gusson, and we're talking about um, archaeology, ancient archaeology. Um, Daryl, you, you know, after this career in the Navy, you obviously kind of gravitated toward marine archaeology, ancient shipwrecks, I presume, Spanish galleons. Did you have visions maybe someday of discovering uh few billion dollars in gold oh always everybody has that image (laughs) are you kidding me as a little boy i had that image (laughs) but then you had the navy background and you retired and you had all that free time and you had all those contacts and i mean it was irresistible right well i had the privilege of being able to work with some good people and some that were not so good the pirates you mentioned about 
Mm. And that was another part of the story. But I also had the opportunity to help fabricate and own a research vessel that was put together for shallow water work. But we had magnificent equipment on board from the standpoint of underwater you know, survey and things of this nature. And we surveyed a great deal of area. And it's a wild story. And it's something I dare not at this point. I'm still involved with the government of two countries on this matter. Oh, good so, grief. What a tease. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, it's true. Uh, so I we can't talk in, about her. We can't talk about oh, this. No, 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 no. We, we can talk a little bit about it. For example, uh, I was involved in the, an issue which involved the Captain Kidd shipwreck. Uh, and we, I had a contract, in fact, where, in which the ship was located. And what unvo- unfolded was, shall we say, very interesting. And also, I think that's what the correspondence is still ongoing after all these years. But it, it's, um, it was an interesting story. And I, I met all kinds of wonderful people and learned all about Catherine Kidd's real treasure and a story that's never been printed anywhere. And uh, things of that nature. It was, it was fun. A lot of hard work. And it involved me in exactly what you're talking about, uh, politics, if you will, on an island level, uh, whether it would be the Dominican Republic or on Dominica or other islands. Uh, it was intricate. It was, uh, unfortunately, um, shall we say, island politics. Hmm. And the things that unfolded weren't necessarily ethical. And I found myself as a man who had spent all of his time working with the United States government, looking for something that was ethical. <laughs> and I had a bit of a learning curve. But anyway, that's that's another story. But I enjoyed the work very, very much. Okay, without uh, divulging any secrets, obviously, let me yes. ask you a couple of questions. Do you still maintain contact with this ship? What ship are we referring to? You ship that was devoted to underwater exploration. You said shallow water um, that ship was appropriated by a foreign government. Oh. Unlawfully. Oh. Uh, and so it, it, that's one of the parts that have led me to still be writing to the Department of Justice, to the President of the United States, uh, to the United States Trade Representative, to the FBI, and a whole lot of other people. Uh, that correspondence is a, is a book into itself. You're going to write it someday? I just may. I think I've already started it uh, twice. <laughs> I mean, has has the kind of has this? Do you have any real hope of restitution, or has the statute of limitations kind of run? No, no, no. no. It, it's it's wide open as far as I'm aware of. Oh. Uh, it was the the action went forward as a First Amendment petition for a redress of grievance, and so that that was formally done. And as far as I'm aware, it's still wide open. It's a criminal matter, not a commercial matter. I, I think there will be, at some point, a resolution to it. And did this all rotate around treasure, conventional? Uh, yes, as a matter of fact, and uh, treasure and a historical ship, uh, which, like I say, uh, it, it's a long story. Hmm. And But I did learn some things that were fun at the time and met some wonderful people. I mean, absolutely marvelous people. Well, I guess my question was an oblique way of asking, do you know people that you could call and say, there's this really interesting place off the western end of Cuba, 
in international waters. Would you be interested in going and taking a look? <laughs> I do know a couple of people uh, who have that kind of background and who are still plugged in that I could ask that question. I'm not sure what they'd be willing to tell me, but yes, I can ask the question. Well, I'll see. And I do maintain those contacts even to this day. Off the air, we will have an extended conversation on this because <laughs> just as the Mars stuff is the breakthrough, I think, in terms of extraterrestrial civilizations in the solar system, there's stuff here on Earth, both underwater and in the Antarctic, that are equally, shall we say, um, provocative and potential paradigm shatterers. And they're so much easier to get to than the stuff on the moon or on Mars, at least at the moment. Richard, Richard, our world is the most amazing place to live in the world. (laughs) It's the only world we basically know right now. But in truth, wherever you look, you find miracles that you can't explain. Uh, you know, I have been to some of the old ruins personally, both in Peru and elsewhere, and, and I am astonished by what I've seen. I have no explanation for them. I, I can't even begin to explain them. And the topic tonight about the Great Pyramid is one of those. It's an amazing monument. It's not a pile of rock. Uh, anybody who thinks that was put together haphazardly or simply to entomb a king needs to go back and check his notes because I don't believe that it was. Uh, It is an anomaly, and it is a um, database in cut stone, and it was left for a reason. Hmm. Okay, let us us close one last loop. How did you make the leap from marine archaeology, shipwrecks, pirates, weird governments, expropriations, writing to the president, etc., to investigating the pyramid? Uh, it went to my my private studies, which dealt with looking at ancient history, uh, looking at uh, material relating to the Bible, if you will, and other uh, civilizations, including the Persian kings and including Indian um, materials, and looking at historical documentation, trying to understand what it was that I was reading and what it all meant. And I, I don't know why anybody doesn't think there are ETs. They're all over our history. And the, the fact is, I don't believe that, that they've ever been disconnected from us for a long time. I don't, I don't think they suddenly, last Thursday, the ETs showed up. Hmm. I think we've been watched for a long time. Uh, you find that in the book of Enoch, which is an old, old, old book, uh, he spoke of the Watchers. And the Watchers uh, were extraterrestrials, and no question about it. And Enoch took a journey up. But isn't isn't the distinction? Have we been watched and and kind of shepherded, not as colleagues, not as equals, but as Native Americans stuck on a reservation with guards at the gates, that kind of thing? Well, that goes back, of course, to Charles Fort and the Book of the Damned. Because that was his supposition. His supposition is an unflattering one. Well, he said we were property. That is correct. I don't believe that by any sense of the word, but he did. Um, I think. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hang on. Charles Charles Sport is a major name in this field. He thought we were owned by someone. Why do you, based on your research, think that's not true? 
I believe there has been interference, interstellar interference, for a long time. Uh, this planet has gone through rack and ruin at times. Uh, we can talk about the the uh, Younger Dryas catastrophe, uh, which you know was a meteorite strike. Uh, the waters and the sea is coming up 400 feet. All these things are historical and scientific records. Uh, we can look at all this. How others living elsewhere view these things is actually the source of why I wrote five books. <laughs> they are science fiction. But I, hy- I hypothetically came up with one answer. Isn't it funny is how, you how you physicists, you know, you can't put it into fact. So like my friend John Brandenburg last night, you know, plasma physicist, nuclear physicist, he turned out putting all his research into fiction, science fiction. And now yes. we have, you know, uh, Daryl, we have you doing the same. Doesn't anybody just stand up and tell the truth anymore? Oh, I try. But but unfortunately, if you tell the truth, you're either sued <laughs> or charged with something like leaking things you shouldn't and or killed one or the other. Um, mm. I it's it's a matter of trying to be prudent and speaking to the audience. The, the science fiction route allows you the liberty of fantasizing, if you will, and embedding in your story elements of truth that you can present as part of the story. You know, there used to be a whole Victorian literary um, genre called Romana Kleps that did that routinely back in the Victorian era. Maybe we've regressed. <clears throat> I think we have, and if you get into the action of litigation, one of the reasons I'm reluctant to talk about what happened in the Dominican Republic is there are people involved, and there, I say, and truthfully, there were crimes committed. I didn't commit them. I, I had seen it done. It was done, and I could, I could tell you about it, but the point was there are people who would not like that story being told. To what degree? I had a friend of mine in the Dominican Republic say, be careful, Daryl. The Caribbean is very deep. Mm. <laughs> and so he, those were there. And he says, you mess around with this person, he will kill you. And he meant it literally. So, mm. yeah, you you got to walk with a soft step. Prudence, yeah, um, prudence. Okay. All right, yes. so back back to the Great Pyramid. You know, you and I could talk for 20 hours, and we'll never get <laughs> to the point. So we have to be a little focused. Um, so the Great Pyramid, as part of your looking at the past, at archaeology, at uh, ancient history. Why the pyramid? I mean, there's all kinds of other ancient marvels. There's the incredible geometric stones at Tehuanaco up there on the plateau. There's Tehuanaco itself. There's Easter Island. There's, I mean, why Egypt and the Great Pyramid? Um, My mom and dad visited Egypt many decades ago. And they personally were there. My dad did not, but my mom did. Mm. And I had the opportunity to go visiting. And I, for whatever reason, maybe it was the political tension and the fact that I did carry a security clearance, that I didn't want to expose myself to the conflicts that were in that area. So I stepped past Egypt. So I did go to Israel. And I enjoyed my stay at Israel and met some wonderful people, including a very, very, very good friend who's now gone. He was an Israeli airborne uh, officer, and he went through more combat than any man I had ever met before. And 
I, one of the conversations that always would come up was the pyramid. And with my mom's stories of the inside of the pyramid, it was a natural. And then when I came across the statement, which you have quoted, about it not ever being discerned as to what the source of the Royal Egyptian Cubit was, that struck my, my fancy bone as, well, that's a challenge. Where did it come from? And it was on that challenge that I picked up the challenge and proceeded to see if I could look at it and make that determination for myself. And I had not the slightest idea where it would lead me. And I was as amazed as amazed as I could be when I did find where it took me because it took me to a place that's impossible. It cannot be. It's just simply by everything we call modern science and history, it cannot be. But regrettably, as I say in my white paper, the stones do not lie. And a ruler doesn't lie. And you have the physical measurements. You can discern, following the breadcrumbs that they left, what they did. And, of course, that leaves two questions or three questions or more. When did they do it? Who were they? And why did they do it? Because it wasn't something they put together uh, with beer money. That, that took, a, took a lot of work. Mm. Well, in terms of in terms of GNP, you know, um, um, national, exactly. national, whatever. Okay, so let's start metonymically and try to follow, you know, this story in a somewhat linear fashion. What is a royal cubit, and why should we give a damn? A royal cubit uh, is the standardized unit of length that was used by the builders of the Great Pyramid, and other than that, it, it doesn't have any real phenomenon, except that it has been noted that it's proportional to the equatorial circumference of the Earth. And it puzzled a lot of people, is where did it come from, and how does it relate to the, to the equatorial circumference of the Earth? Uh, well, that's a good question, but also, where did they get the information that said this is the, you know, the Earth's circumference, the Earth's circumference, uh, excuse me, uh, in circumference, what is? Where do they get that information? Uh, and we're talking 4,000 years ago. And that pyramid uh, consists of absolutely measurable, finite data that says they had it and had it cold. Um, I question how and who built the darn thing. Uh, that's, that's the whole issue. And it is a database. And it does establish that whoever built it, built it to a very high level of precision. And that wasn't cheap. Ask anybody who tries to maintain tolerance and manufacturing of less than a hundredth of an inch. And they did with granite stones. Good grief. <laughs> okay, so let's begin at the beginning. Um, the royal cubit as opposed to what, an ordinary cubit? Well, the royal cubit is unique, of course. It may have been in another pyramid in South America. I've not been able to verify that. But there are other cubits mentioned. Um, there are, that other nations had cubits. But the royal Egyptian cubit was pretty well defined as unique to the Great Pyramid. Like I say, it may have been used elsewhere, but the one everybody knows about is the Egyptian royal cubit. And like I say, it is connected to the equator and its, and its measurements, and how, that nobody understood. And that's why the search for its source was such a, I think, a reason why some scientists and some scholars went looking for it and could not find it. 
what I discovered had been buried in the annals of history for more than 4,000 years. Wow. So it, it is a significant discovery, um, and it's one which I say surprised me. I wasn't expecting it. I had no idea what I would find. I just followed the rabbit hole. Okay, <laughs> so the I royal cubit is, is equivalent in English measure to what length? It's unique. Uh, it's not equivalent to any length. It's 20.626 inches. Okay. And so the, what is it equivalent to? Uh, 20.626. <laughs> so it's uh, shorter two feet. Okay. Yes. Okay. And the question was, where did it come from? And when I started looking for that answer, I, I started looking for clues. And the first clue that I found was uh, in the great king's chamber. And it was there, and it, to me it was a clue, uh, for two reasons. Number one, it was the only artifact that was ever found, a major artifact, I mean, sizable. They found a couple of small items down, some shoes, but, but it was the only significant artifact that was found in the Great Pyramid. And, and that was said to be the case when they broke into it, uh, you know, in the 800s and broke into it and checked for all kinds of records and gold and pharaoh's bodies. Nothing was there, only a stone coffer. And that stone coffer, being the only artifact in the Great Pyramid, suggested to me that whoever put it there had a reason for putting it there. And it was one of the things I noticed was it was of such a size that there wasn't anybody going to drag it down the downward sloping passages and out of the pyramid. It was too big to go through the passages. So it's so too big to have been there. So it's too big to have been brought in or to now have been uh, been taken out, meaning the pyramid had to have been built around it. Or at some points they had inserted it through by going into a, I, we, I don't know of anything that says that they did that. It would appear they built around it. Uh, but I can't prove that as to when it, how it got there. All we can prove is it is there. In fact, one of the things which I forwarded to you was a um, sound, 20 second sound cut showing the vibration. If, of hitting this thing, what it sounded like. I'm yeah, sure since since resonance and tonality and all that good stuff are going to come up, let me actually play this. This is really intriguing. This was <clears throat> a 1970s musician named Paul Horn, who actually did an album called Inside the Great Pyramid. We're going to play some of the cuts from the album as part of our uh, musical breaks in the morning here. But this is Paul Horn after his very, very echoey introduction, which I'm not going to play because it's literally because of the echoes in that chamber, in the King's Chamber. It's almost unintelligible. Um, but what he did then is he slapped or used a hammer, you know, wood or whatever. Palm the, of his hand. With uh, the palm of his hand, okay. The uh, sides of this uh, artifact called the coffer, which you know, kind of as a synonym for coffin. It's supposed to have held the Pharaoh's coffer in the mainstream view, which, of course, it did not um, because its measurements are very intriguing. We'll get into those after you listen. But just listen to what it sounds like when Horn palmed or hit with the palm of his hand this granite uh, artifact sitting there in the uh, at one end of the king's chamber in the center of this 
massive man-made mountain of stone. That's what she sounds like. Daryl? Yes, oh. it does sound like that. When Paul Horn took out a music, musical tuning instrument and measured the frequency, uh, he found it to be 438 uh, cycles per second. And he tuned his flute up to that and then played the music, which is on that album. And it's a beautiful album. Um, but the point here is that it's a granite stone. Uh, I mean, it's made of, you know, Aswan granite. And it was never intended to be a housing for a sarcophagus or a king's body. And the proof of that is they didn't find any king's coffin or body in it. And also it has this wonderful resonance. Uh, if you look at its dimensions, is it okay to speak about that? Yeah, of this course. Time, Richard? Yeah. Okay. When you look at its, 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 its measurements... Uh, it appears, and uh, please believe me, I am blind. I can't go look at it myself. But it appears to have been cut or sawn out of a larger unit of granite. Uh, and after it had been cut to specific dimensions, someone used some type of device. Some have said it was rotary because they can see the tool marks. But they bored this big block of granite out. And it happens to be they removed precisely 50% of the volume so that the volume of the remaining granite is equal to the volume of the cavity. And it's that resonant relationship of this hollow uh, carved out piece of granite that you heard played. And like I say, 438 hertz. Uh, so if you look at that, my question was, why is it there? Uh, why did they do it? And the one thing I could not escape was 438. The reason I couldn't escape 438 and took it as a clue was the unit measurements of the Great Pyramid are 440 Egyptian royal cubits on each side. So 440 was not just an accidental number. Uh, whoever created that, that block of granite and tuned it to vibrate at 440 hertz, knew what they were doing, and they had a very precise reason for doing it. And uh, so that was where I started. Okay, let me stop you there, because the coffer as we know it now, and it's been, you know, since people in the 1600s, uh, I forget the guy's name, who went there from England to look at measurements and do all, crawl over the pyramid and measure everything. We know the coffer has been damaged. There's an upper chunk that was taken out of one corner, a sizable chunk. Do you think that accounts for the two hertz or two cycle per second difference between 440 certainly, and 438? It certainly may contribute towards it, um, but we're talking about a piece of granite. It's, and I'm still marveling. You could tune a block of granite. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, it could, and that's what I, I think may be the case of the two, two cycles per second. There's also the question of the precision of Paul Horn's uh, device, electronic device, that he measured the frequency. Uh, Brian has actually uh, used his um, guitar tuning device, and he's measured the sound that you displayed, and it definitely comes up uh, tone A. So 
So I'm, I was pleased to note that before we submitted the tone, tone A being A A note A. Yeah. Yeah. On but a scale. What what frequency? 440. Ah, see, that's the missing piece. For those in the audience who are not musicians. Sorry, Brian. So it, it was that's where I got my start. And so I kept looking at that and trying to figure out what it was all about. And I played around with it. And the, the Egyptians were not known to use decimal points. In other words, it wasn't 3.141592. Uh, it was quite different than that. They found a fraction. And then they would work with fractions. And it was pretty close to pi. But the point here is the fact that they, they use fractions all the time. So I began to look at that as a ratio, as a fraction of something. It came to me that we were dealing with music, octaves. And there was a relationship. There had to be a 440. And what I tried to do was look at it and say, okay, what in the world is the wavelength of a 440 hertz signal? That's a pretty simple answer. So I looked it up through calculation and calculation. What's that? I said it should be. Yeah, it was. And so it turned out to be 30 point some inches, and that's nowhere near 20.626. So I looked at it and said, okay, what's the ratio based upon fractions of that relationship? And I, I checked that real quick. It's easy enough to do. And the answer came up two-thirds, precisely. 0.009 type of thing. Hmm. I said, okay, uh, we're looking at a ratio that's essentially two-thirds. So I, I looked at that and said, okay, we're, we're dealing with two-thirds of the wavelength of a uh, 440 hertz signal in standard conditions. Now, for standard conditions, I went back and went on the web and pulled down somebody else's number so I couldn't be accused of fudging. And I, I looked at it and went, went to the next step. Okay. I found the definition of where did we get the royal cubit. It was a result of somebody measuring two-thirds of the wavelength uh, of a 440 hertz signal. Wow. Well, that, that caused me some problems. And the central problem was, are you joking me? We're talking 4,200 years ago, and you can't make that kind of a measurement according to our history at uh, an accurate measurement of four uh, of a 440 hertz signal and give me the wavelength uh, of that that frequency and then multiply it by two thirds. Yeah, and multiply it by two thirds. And the question why two thirds came up, of course. Of course, but the, the relationship was obvious. It was two thirds the wavelength of a 440 hertz signal. Okay, hold on. How in, we are at the bottom yes. of the hour. The witching hour here in the land of enchantment in the desert. We're going to go out with uh, Paul Horn, who's playing his flute in the resonance of the king's chamber with the coffer sitting there, precisely cut so that its volume is exactly one half, like 0.999 of the outer external dimensions. Resonance on resonance, on resonance. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out-there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed, and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. back to the other side of midnight against the resident tones of Paul Horn humming in the king's chamber in 1977 of the great pyramid of Giza it's against this literally resonant background Daryl that we're going to talk about the numbers and how they fit into a meta model of this as a machine, the Great Pyramid as a vast, incredibly massive edifice built specifically to resonate to certain frequencies and what they ultimately mean. So please continue the story. I'm glad that you played Paul Horn's uh, music a little bit. It's, it's a good album and it's a haunting album because it's a way we can today hear the vibrations 
that were entombed within a granite chamber uh, over 4,000 years ago. And it is a bridge between us and the builders. And I think it's, it's a marvelous thing that you've done tonight. Um, the question that come, came to my mind when I noted this relationship was how can it be? Uh, our, our history, our science, says that we did not learn how to measure accurately cycles per second and a sound a frequency, if you will, until the 1700s. Um, so going back 4,000 years... Well, for one, showing, thing, for one thing, you've got to have an accurate clock. Exactly. And that's the key. Right there is the key to the whole darn thing. And you've got to ask a question that very few people ask. And it can be st fundamentally stated... Why are there 360 degrees in a circle? Uh, you can go further than that to say, why are there 24 hours in a day, 60 minutes in an hour, and 60 seconds in a minute? Where did those values originate? Where did they come from? We have an object there called the Great Pyramid, which is the largest structure on the planet. I don't know of any bigger one. Maybe there is. But the point, I don't know of it. And darn it, this thing was built on the basis of a 24-hour day, a 60-second minute, and uh, it's, it's, it's fundamental to its essential design. And it proves, proves by its existence that they had the means by which they could tune a block of granite to 438 hertz or 440 hertz. Uh, I mean, that's an, that's an accomplishment. Um, and then they also could in, incorporate this building, this structure, precisely at 30 degrees north latitude, which says they knew exactly what that latitude was, and they built right flat on it. And, and, then they, and oriented the whole damn thing within five arc minutes of true north, and that may not be an error, because I conducted a calculation many decades ago, assuming it was true north, given the precision was the rest of the elements of the pyramid. And if you do that, and then you calculate how long in terms of the literal plate tectonic rotation of the African plate, it takes to produce an error of five arc minutes, you derive an age for the construction of the architecture, not just of the Great Pyramid, but the entire Giza plateau and the other two pyramids the grand plan that will boggle the mind but in fact fits in perfectly with some dating i did three days ago of some things we find in jezero crater on mars i am not surprised at all i one of the things i put into my white paper was who were these builders where did they come from were they Egyptians, as we believe, you know, Egyptians, or were they imported, and it was some other country? Part of the many things I've read indicated they were they were kings of a foreign land that came into Egypt. Uh, I don't know whether they were or not, but I don't know where they came from. Uh, uh, that's a good question. I, but I know the Egyptologists will tell you, oh, they came from Cairo. Uh, and okay, that's good. They caught the subway out there every morning. Um, and, <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> I have some Sean's thoughts about that. I really do. I'm sorry. Um, All of us being... who have interacted with um, Egyptologists, particularly with Zahi Hoas, 
have some of those similar thoughts. I mean, I'm probably one of the only people in the world that have the distinction, along with Robert Boval, that Zahi threatened to have our heads cut off and thrown into a ditch in Egypt if we dared visit the Giza Plateau in person. Now you, now you understand why I didn't go to Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't mind going to Israel. They, they weren't fussy about things like that. Um, anyway, the point here is that they did build this thing precisely at 30 degrees north. And then when you recognize only did they have the location of north latitude absolutely nailed down, uh, they built a building, which is the largest building from my understanding to this day, 13 plus acres. Uh, and they built this, this monolith uh, and encoded in its dimensions the precise value for the circumference of the Earth, which is within five-tenths of a percent of error from what NASA says the Earth's measurements are. And I don't think that was a good guess. They had precise data, and they were using technology, i.e., as you said, a clock that was precise in order to compute a velocity of sound. Uh, and then they gave us, as I think, a gift, 24 hours a day, 60 minutes in an hour, and 60 seconds in, in, in a minute. I think those were gifts. And I think it dealt with the precession numbers that are pretty ancient in there. Uh, Hamlet's Mill goes into the precession uh, a lot in those numbers. Um, what I learned in studying some of the old stuff from Hamlet's Mill and elsewhere was that the ancients encoded uh, a lot of their scientific information by placing numbers of doors and numbers of this and numbers of that into a tale that they could teach the, you know, the younger people about the traditions of their fundamental astronomy and things of this nature. They used that as a, and those, some of those legends have come down through to us. But the, the thing that fascinated me was when I did make the determination and the vibrations, by the way, that you just played, shows a phenomenal uh, characteristic of the, of, the, of the king's chamber. The whole king's chamber is made of granite walls, and it has a floating a granite floor. Uh, the walls do not rest. No, wait, wait, wait. Okay, I was going to say, define what you mean by floating. Okay. It, it, it appears that the uh, floor slabs are grooved, and they sit on other stones below them, and they vibrate just like the coffer. Oh, so they isolated it physically so it would exactly. resonate. That's correct. That's and incredible ceiling, engineering. Ceiling. Yes, it is. The nine beams in the ceiling weigh tons, and they vibrate also. 70 the tons. They're, they're the weight of a locomotive, 70 tons apiece. Yeah. How did they le le leverage those up there and get them to vibrate precisely? Um, one, of the, one of the references that I put into the white paper is of a modern engineer who went in the 60s down there. And Brian can give you his name. I think he'll find it. Uh, and the point is he came back and gave his measurements, which he did with the latest and best of instrumentation, and said that the best they could determine was that the entire king's chamber resonated through many octaves to an F-sharp note, through many octaves. So there was a reason for okay, doing Okay, hang on. F-sharp is what frequency? Brian? Uh, I do not have that. <laughs> it's, it's near the 440 area. Google is your friend. <laughs> <laughs> but the point here is that I, 
I am not a musician, and I admit that immediately. But his his report is definitive, and um, basically he said it was an A note. So what we have here is an entire granite chamber specifically constructed with floating floors and uh, walls and ceilings that vibrate to a multiple frequency of, of an F-sharp in many, many tones or octaves. Now, these are not my words. These are the gentlemen who took the instrumentation in and made the evaluation. And, and what was his name again? Brian? It, it's in my white paper. I'm sorry. Okay, the name of the gentleman that... It's right below Paul Horn, Brian. Okay. So I use this information, though, to make my next, my next you know, work. I, I tried to find out why two-thirds. What was the importance of two-thirds? Is it Petrie? No. No, it was, uh, Petrie was back in the 19th century. That's, that's the Egyptologist, Brian. Right immediately below... Because many years ago, I had a, a, a colleague in New York named Boris Saeed, who actually had an apartment in Cairo, and he stabled Arabians in the village that's right in front of the Sphinx, and he could come and go, and he knew everybody, and he actually brought a technical team, including a NASA engineer, and they measured the frequencies in the Great Pyramid's uh, King's Chamber, and I'm trying to remember, I think his name started with a D. Maybe the same Tom guy. Yeah, that would be probably him, yes. Tom Danley is the one below Paul. Yes, Tom Danley. That sounds very <clears throat> familiar. But he was also a gentleman. His report, by the way, which is referenced in the white paper, talks of his actually being inside the Sphinx, in chambers within the Sphinx, and also going down an iron ladder below the pyramid into underground chambers. And I've never found anyone else who ever admitted that they were there. So I found his report very interesting. Okay, so F-sharp F is a, a hair's breadth away from A? Brian? I'm taking a look here. He's the musician in the family. Ah, you could just play it on the guitar, Brian. <laughs> I'm serious. Probably. It's radio. Come on. Board. I don't have my guitar. Oh, darn, do darn. See, see. Okay. Well, we'll have to make a checklist the next time you come on, Daryl. There you go. <laughs> I, I would love that. Nevertheless, the issue came up why two-thirds. In the logical association, once I had found there was an association, uh, was to then look at the outside dimensions of the pyramid. And I noticed it was 440, the same as the frequency, uh, times the 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 Egyptian royal cubit. And I said, okay, what is the Egyptian royal cubit? Well, I just solved that problem. It was two-thirds the wavelength of a 440 hertz frequency. Wow. Well, being a little bit of a physicist, I realized that if you multiply a wavelength times the frequency, guess what you get? The velocity of sound. By the way, the F-sharp frequency is 3069.994, so 370 cycles per second in that same range as the A440. So it's, it's a couple half steps below A. F sharp, okay. seven. So anyway, what I realized is if you took the, the basic 440, uh, which is the frequency, and multiplied it by, quote, the wavelength of that frequency, you ended up with uh, 
a, a velocity. The speed said, of sound. Okay. Yes, correct. And so what I realized was that we had a ratio of two-thirds of a velocity of sound. And that was on each side of the pyramid. And I'm saying, okay, why two-thirds? You know, mm. what again? Why two-thirds? And I kept looking at that, looking at that, and I said, well, what else do I know? If I had an element of time, a unit of time, and that velocity, it would become a distance. So I worked out the equation, multiplying two-thirds by this, this uh, 440 by this wavelength, and, and I came up with eight-thirds being four sides of the pyramid. And I said, well, where did that get me? And I said, well, let's look for time. And I had to hunt for the time, to be honest with you. And finally, I, I went back to the coffer, that 440. And I began to ask myself a question. Is there some other reason the 440? And the only reason I could come up with was an odd one. But I had been looking at precession numbers and how the ancients use those precession mm. numbers. And I said, okay, let's look at how many minutes are in 24 hours, 1440. So I said, okay, drop the, the leading one. You end up with 440. So I took this to me, okay, they're pointing us to time, a block of time times 24 hours. So we had a distance, a velocity multiplied uh, by time. So I had distance. And I said, well, what does the distance show me? Well, it wasn't hard to run off the computation. And I found that if you took the velocity of sound as it was indicated based on a 440 hertz signal with that wavelength, uh, it put me right in the middle of the ocean after 24 hours. I mean, in the middle of nowhere. Hmm. I said, so what, what does this mean? And I went back to my... See, as an old Navy man, you can't get away from the sea. Darn it. Absolutely true. <laughs> and so I, I, I kept looking at this thing and saying, it has to mean something. So I went back to the Egyptian technique of they don't use anything but fractions. So I said, okay, if they use fractions, what does the fraction tell me? And converting the linear distance from feet to nautical miles, which I was comfortable in working with, I found that it was a ratio of, if you will, the circumference of the earth. And I said to myself, well, what that must I multiply that length to be equal to the circumference of the earth? And guess what? Hmm. It was the inverse of two-thirds in effect. <laughs> Four thirds to be eight-thirds, excuse me, three over eight. And so if you multiplied that distance by the correction factor, it got you to precisely the circumference of the Earth. So that two-thirds played into a correction factor that the, it measures the circumference of the Earth as a velocity of sound plus the correction factor. That, that's the factor. And so I said, fine. But that didn't help me because the, the ratio was off. And I said, okay, I have eight-thirds, and it's supposed to be four-thirds. I don't know. Is that, is that, no, it's supposed to be eight-thirds. Anyway, so the fact, I went back and looked at the calculation, and what I found is I went back and took the two-to-one ratio of the coffer again, and the two-to-one ratio of the floor measurements, 10 by 20, and held that two-to-one and went to an octave twice and a half as far as the frequencies are concerned, and said, okay, we're not talking about 24 hours. They're pointing towards 12 hours. So I was able to take the same numbers of velocity of sound, multiplying it by 12 hours, and I looked at that, and we're still in the middle of the darned ocean. But the correction factor, when made, 
was precisely the relationship of eight-thirds, which was exactly the formulation that was of the pyramids, uh, proportion two-thirds times four. So that was it. It was so a, it's an interlocking geometric yes, mathematical code. Exactly. And the point being, it's not something that's a theory. Even though he comes up and says, that's just a theory. I'm sorry, it's not a theory. No, these it's are measurements. Yeah, simple mathematics and a ruler. There are, un- there are no unknowns. There's no X's here. Exactly. Precisely. And so, yes, it is a discovery of, of significant proportion, and it establishes that they knew the circumference of the Earth in a very fine text is equal to what NASA could, today can tell you. And I run those measurements out for somebody to look at. Which, of course, is equivalent to the 360 complete circumference system of mathematics. Yes, absolutely correct. And the point here is they are the people, whoever they were, that did give us 24 hours a day, did give us, you know, 60 minutes in an hour and 60 seconds. They're the ones that say, tune your instruments to 440 hertz. I mean, they were there. They have been in our past. They gifted us all this information, and we have forgotten it as to where it came from. Or it's been suppressed. Or it has And after suppressed. all this time and all the research I've done, Daryl, I frankly don't think there are any such things as coincidences and accidences in all of this. I think it's been deliberately suppressed because we're never supposed to know who we are and who those builders were and why they came here, and that's the discussion for the third hour, and left us this thing which is there to be decoded as long as the Great Pyramid is in reasonably good shape. And their exterior is eroded. There are redundancies inside that will lead you to the same conclusion. All you have to do is measure the king's chamber. It, it gives you some very specific numbers. Which is protected by, you know, what, six million tons of, yes. of limestone. <laughs> it, it's, it's a magnificent structure, and it is, a, it is a, a database in cut stone, and it was fashioned intentionally, willfully, to be able to survive thousands of years to tell future generations we were here. So let me ask you probably a politically dangerous question. I love those. Why did a brilliant genius like Staccini come out so flatly against looking at any of this as having meaning? You'd have to ask him. I I don't know why he would do that. Was he part of the Um, cover-up? I can't tell you. I'm sorry. I don't know. Well, when I see brilliant people doing dumb and stupid things, I have to ask myself, what's the hidden agenda? How can bright people be consistent? In fact, I'm looking at the, the whole NASA crew, and every, tur- every place we turn, every observation they're making reaffirms you know, the, where we are now, Jezero Crater, artificial, 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 as far as the eye can see, including what's stretching overhead. And yet we have 500 people, as documented by our colleague uh, Andrew Curry, who will be on in the next uh, uh, five or ten minutes, and none of these people – seem to get it. It's like they're either as dumb as dirt, which is meaninglessly irrelevant because you don't get a job like that, working at the cutting edge of science and technology for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration by being dumb and stupid, or 
they're part of a incredibly organized and masterfully uh, managed cover-up, which is almost impermeable. Nothing has broken on the subject of Mars and what's in the solar system for over half a century, and we've had thousands of geniuses working at every different level on this, and nobody breaks cover. In fact, you have kind of Judas goats that lead people off in the wrong direction. The more uh, I've read extensively Sacchini and the appendix to uh, Tompkins' book, the guy's not dumb. He's not an idiot. He's not, you know, was he part of the cover-up designed to lead other scholars in the wrong direction? Because this is a secret we, ordinary humans, the great unwashed, are never supposed to know. So there are secret orders that have been around for centuries. Uh, much of what has been taught has been concealed by these secret groups, and they've been around, like I say, for a very, very long time. Um, what they know, I don't know. What they know may not even be right, but that they do exist, and there's no question about that. Um, as to whether it's being exerted from outside in, uh, there's a possibility that is true. Um, it's, it's like the cover-up for what happened at, at Roswell. Well, wait a minute. Didn't some, speaking of Israel, didn't some Israeli general in charge of their space command the other day basically say there are ETs, they're out there, they're here, and they don't want us to reveal this because we're not ready? I've heard that stated, and I've heard it's, stated. It's in writing. He actually person. said it. It's not, you know, yeah. this, this guy, you know, on the record, he's now retired, of course. They all tell the truth when they retire. But he has a persona, he has credentials, he has a background, he has a, a reputation. For him to put that on the record flatly, that the cover-up is not being masterminded uh, by us, but by them, he said, pointing at the ceiling, um, raises this to a whole other level and puts what Steve was saying at the of the show in a very different context. Because if there is going to be Pentagon disclosures which is ongoing of this stuff, if there are going to be hearings, if the president ultimately is going to announce, yes, they are here, it must be with the tacit approval of whoever is running the show, and they may not be here, down here, right now, tonight. I have no disagreement with what you've just said, none whatsoever. Uh, my study of history, my study of other aspects say that we have been in, shall we say, in be at least observed by the watchers for a long, long time. There is a relationship. And I see that's really qu the question I ask. You know, what is our relationship to them? And I believe there is a relationship. It's a one-on-one -on -one relationship. And we have not been told the truth. Was Fort, the was Fort closer to the truth where property, therefore, we don't need to know and we should never know? You know, you don't tell the sheep you're leading them to the slaughter. Or is it more like we're in a quarantine situation and we have to mature to a certain level by our own bootstraps before at an ethical level we are deemed shall we say, appropriately backgrounded to not freak out a la Brookings when this all comes out? 
I don't think it's necessarily at that level. I, the idea of being quarantined, you don't have to quarantine somebody who can't drive. I mean, <laughs> we couldn't go anywhere if we wanted until our technology came up to snuff. And once we have technology that reaches out to Mars and I think perhaps beyond, then, then we become someone which is necessary to talk with, um, someone to talk to. But I believe that we have been watched a long time. I believe there's no way you can escape that reality. You can hide it if you want uh, because you don't want to cause people grief or troubles or miseries. And you've raised an issue about war on Mars. Uh, there is suggestion that there was similar war. Well, hang on. on we, are, we are literally at the top of the hour. That's why okay. Paul Horn is playing in the King's Chamber in the background. My guest this morning is Daryl Arthur Gusman. We're going to be joined by some members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team. And you are literally on the other side of midnight at the witching hour of midnight here in the Land of Enchantment. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Do not touch that dial because if you do, you'll miss stuff. And you don't want to miss what's coming up. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
God, you know, I'd love to be there to hear him play that. It's all about resonance, everybody. Resonance, resonance, resonance. Okay. We have some of our resonant enterprise mission imaging team crew with us. Uh, Andrew Curry, who is our resident uh, artist. And um, when need be, therapist. We may explain that. We may not. Ron Gerbron, who is our resident generalist and who knows a bit about almost anything you could ask, including <clears throat> he found that we can post in your section of radio with pictures, Daryl, a, a sonographic image of the ruins underwater a half a mile down off the western end of Cuba. And I believe we have um, uh, Tim Saunders with us, um, who is a nautical engineer. You Navy guys will obviously be taking over the rest of the show so I can go and have some dinner early because you'll talk sea stuff and shanty stuff and marine stuff. And anyway, um, everybody sound off who is here so far. Oh, Terry. You might want to do Good it evening. one at a time. I hear Tim. Permission Ron's to come here. Aboard. Ron is here. Andrew? Permission to come up. Yeah, permission to come aboard, Richard. Granted. Well, guys, uh, Daryl, uh, this is a very interesting group of people. Um, before we move on, I kind of want to give our, our crew a chance to reflect on what you've revealed or maybe ask a question or two, and then we're going to get to the next part, which is how this stunning mathematical and geometrical precision now appears to have a point origin. Gentlemen, who wants to go first? See, they're also courteous, um, courteous and polite. Oh, yes. Okay, Ron, you spoke first, therefore you're it. Uh, I was clearing my throat. Okay, uh, well, yeah, most of it, most of this information isn't, isn't really a surprise. So I'm, it's, I've been listening more to how it fits together. And um, the, um, well, I'm just follow it, following with the flow here. The, uh, that Paul Horn thing is beautiful, by the way. Everybody should find a copy of the album. Yeah, you can actually, it's an LP. You can actually hear the surface noise of the stylus in the grooves for you next generation folks who don't know what an LP record is <laughs> or vinyl. Out, I, or... Think they, I think they outsold CDs last year from something I read. Really? Wow. Vinyl. Okay, vinyl Andrew. Andrew, you are up. Yeah, I do have a question. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Uh, hi, Andrew. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, yeah. And um, you said something very interesting, and I wrote it down because it like popped out like a like a you know like a live wire. <laughs> and what you said is you said what they know may not even be right. Oh, and, how interesting! Yes, I picked up on that. Yeah. Can you explain that, Daryl? Because uh, Richard and I and Ron and Tim, we've all been sort of in the back channels, not arguing, but, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, like like a tug of war, wondering what the secret societies, the elite, that you know, whatever, what do they really know? Is their information fragmented? Are they looking to fill in the blanks? You know, like, you know what I mean? Is, is the puzzle complete for them? Are they be so beyond us or... Because that was a very curious, you know, a question that you put out there or statement. Well, the best I can say is, having done the research I have, is there are secret organizations and they're 
they're, they're, they're never a whole group. It's always a group and then a, a finite group at the top. And what they believe inside those inner circles, you'd have to ask them. I, I, I don't know. But that I do know they exist, and they have existed for a long time. And we see the track record uh, around our world in history, and it's inexplicable at times why the violence, why the changes, why the, the struggle, and, it, and we can explain it in all kinds of matters. But I don't know what they know. I really don't. But I, I know that uh, it, it, it's obvious that they do exist, um, and it's sometimes couched in terms of religion, uh, and I believe they do have a vision. I can't, unfortunately, uh, fortunately perhaps, tell you what that vision is, but I think we're approaching what they basically have expressed to be a climax. For whatever it is they're expecting, I think we're approaching that point. Mm. And maybe, it's, maybe it's the problem that we're about to hear about in June. Mm. Uh, or, or, or from the Chinese on the darkened plains of Utopia Planitia in the next few days. Well, one of the, being a science fiction writer, and I'll put it in those contexts, uh, and I think you've heard the term pirate before, um, there is an indication in my estimation, and I, this is pure speculation, that we have, shall we say, been um, infiltrated for a long time, and there exists a group of people who say that's not right, and it's taken its becoming. You know, uh, hey. sorry to interrupt, but, you know, it, it was your, those that came back to kind of, you know, check out the family after the great diaspora in our model, humans, and I refer to them over and over again as the pirates, that we've been taken over by pirates. And it's so interesting that completely separately, because we didn't meet until just a few days ago, you're looking at this in a very, through a very similar lens. Yes, and I hope and I do believe that what's coming uh, is something that is positive, and I do believe that will come about, and I have not one thing I could point to except if you go to certain religious materials that would suggest that that is exactly what's about to happen, and um, I don't know, but I think we're a part of a lar much larger community. Uh, I do believe that. And as far as the potential of ruins on Mars, I wouldn't doubt it for a minute. Uh, as to when they were built, uh, when it happened, I don't know. Um, I don't know a lot of things. In fact, I'm rather ignorant. I am basically an empty bowl looking for information. <laughs> um, and so it scares the heck out of me, to be honest with you. And so this is encouraging and hopeful. Um, I love this world. I love the people on it. Yeah, I don't care whether it's Chinese or Bohemian or anything else. We're we're all one family. Um, but we but we aren't aware of it yet, and that's what has to happen. That's the big thing that I think is going to change the downward spiral of history when we realize we're all one family against an unknown and a history that's so staggeringly amazing, and amazing. and and bad guys that are trying to keep us from knowing with willfulness over millennia from knowing who the hell we are. Because the way you take away people's power is you deny them their identity, who they really are. And we see this over and over again in history. Tim, let me bring you in. 
as one nautical guy to another, what are your thoughts on this? Well, let me be very direct. I'm, I'm at a disadvantage because of my different time zone. I've not been listening to the beginning of the show. So I'm entering with an even more empty bowl than Daryl is. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm looking very quickly, frantically, to join up the dots to see what you guys are talking about. So let me just put that on the table. <laughs> okay. Okay. Richard, could I, could I come in again? Yeah, sure, of course. I, I, Sorry, can Darryl, I, I, guys, I wanna... one thing. You don't have to ask permission. It's a conversation, all right? Just break in because if you don't, I'll just keep talking. Sometimes. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come back again, Daryl, to what you said about they may not be right. So, um, you know, you and I had a conversation, and I'm unless you wanted to at some point, and this might not be the venue for it. But you talked about a time when you were a, a young, um, you know naval guy engineer and you were in charge of some pretty sensitive um, material and you had the brass the top naval brass basically say you let me you let us know you let me know any time if something is wrong if something is not right and you know to sort of to take that metaphor and transpose it now are in your estimation are these people, are these, these, these secretive societies, are they looking for people like you? Are they looking for researchers who suddenly come up with the light bulb idea to kind of give them the call in the middle of the night and say, um, <clears throat> you might want to have a look at this. It, you know, is that part of their plan? I, I, I know I'm just, it's speculative, right? But, but I just think that part of the puzzle is all of us. You know, I, I get material sent to me by all kinds of listeners, and it's amazing what people unearth, literally, on, on Mars, you know, with their eyes. And are they looking, are they listening to us here in this forum? Are they, are they waiting for us to tip our hats unconsciously to something that, that we see that they didn't? Do you, do you see what I'm saying? They're all like, I, I think that I do. I believe that, the, that there is intelligence watching us. And I know that there have been reports, and again, these are the types of reports which get suppressed immediately. Change channel to Bravo, you know. Hmm. Uh, don't broadcast that. Uh, and, for example, one of the call signs on the moon by the astronauts was Santa Claus. <laughs> Santa Claus is coming over the ridge. Okay, switch to channel B. Uh, I don't know what it means, but it sounded like somebody saw a UFO or something. I, all I'm saying is that what do they, they know about us? A whole lot more than we know about them. And are they there? Yes. And my, there's no way I can say that anything other than yes, absolutely, they're there. They've been reported throughout our history uh, over and over and over again, including a battle that was fought over, I think, Luxembourg in the 1600s, 1700s. So the, the thing is, is that we have this interrelationship. It's one way because they can engage and disengage at will. We can't. Uh, unless you have some special connection that you're part of a team that's infiltrated and you're on the ground working as an embedded agent. Are they here now? Uh, I, I think the Israeli general may have had more knowledge in that subject than I, I do. Hmm. Uh, I don't know, but I do believe we're close to something, and I do believe there's a nefarious part of the story. I think part of it is our maturity. Uh, we need to understand uh, I think as a human race, we're wonderful. As human beings, we're wonderful. And I think there's been a whole lot of mistakes made. And I think we have been 
maneuvered at times by I don't know who they are, but I think we may be about to find out. And that's that's good, and it's it's not so good. Charles Fort's opinions, uh, he didn't make those determinations without cause. And as I said, we had a report of a ship similar to what had been seen by a prophet named Ezekiel. It happened. It's been recorded. Uh, why throw out the evidence uh, seen by hundreds of people? Um, and we've done that too much. We poo-caught people who had good observations. The first UFOs were sighted over Mount Rainier were all said, no, they're just illusions. Those are just delusional sightings. They're not. Uh, you certainly can't call what happened uh, near a, a strategic base, a SAC base, an illusion. Uh, the record is there. And, and by the way, speaking of which, Brian has the authors of that book, which is the um, Witness to Roswell. Brian? Yes. Okay, there are two primary authors, Thomas J. Carey and Donald R. Schmidt. And the foreword is by Edgar Mitchell. And the afterword is by George Norrie. Mm. Can you send that information to Cynthia either in the Skype window or via an email so she can post it on uh, in, in, in Daryl's section of Radio with Pictures? <laughs> Absolutely. And it looks like you have the link posted to that book on the, on the display material. Excellent. Just so Excellent. Know. See, I'm not looking at our page right now, so... Thank no, it is that. up in current. I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, I, I think you weren't discussing who knows what upstairs, you know, the extraterrestrial um, influence model, but who down here in the agencies yeah. is kind of groping in the dark and looking for, you know, the early warning radar folks like us to tell them where they should be looking. And the one example of this is, we start talking about this potential dome over Jezero, and suddenly, Daryl, the Perseverance team is taking skillions of images with all different kinds of cameras, <clears throat> including nighttime images, time-lapse images with the Watson camera on the end of the arm of what's overhead. Now, that either bestokes incredible ignorance on the part of the team, which I am boggled that that would you know, be true, <laughs> Or they're not, not stupid. <laughs> well, one again, one would not think. Or it's kind of a ritual, in which case, you know, in the Masonic tradition, you don't get the answers unless you ask the question. If we're asking the questions, are they providing the answers in exquisite ritual form? I think you're right on target. To be honest with you. They may not be able to be permitted to say what they believe to be there, but they can show the data and let somebody outside the system give the answer. And therefore, they protected their responsibility, their oaths, and we all come to know the truth. Um, I think that's a good way to look at it. Um, it really is, I think. Um, that's a good answer, Richard. Daryl and Richard, uh, everybody, I, I want to take this – so I don't mean to take out the air here, but I want to take it one step further about looking for something. You know, coming back to the Great Pyramid and the mathematical redundancies that are literally riddled, embedded 
matrix matrixized or how do you how do I say that word? I'm making up words. Matrixed. <laughs> Matrixed, yeah, throughout this structure. Matrixized. Yeah. And you know, and what we might as as Richard has been, you know, hinting phantomly about what we're starting to see here in Gisero. Let me give you a little story. So what I've noticed, my, my children over the years have been in school, and one of the things that the school system here in Vancouver, in British Columbia, Canada, so I suspect pretty much in many, many countries they do, is they identify very early children with high mathematical skill, and they separate them immediately, not socially out of their classroom, but for special math courses, and they keep an eye on them. And we have stories of this. We actually have a listener um, who I won't name his name, but his his son was one of these people that were identified early. He's from Canada, and I, he actually went to university at the same time I went, and he mysteriously disappeared. And there's a whole long story behind it, but he was a mathematical genius. If the math is so complex or so you know even multi-dimensional, are they meaning the agencies here, as Richard outlined? literally looking into the children and their, 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 their mathematical prowess to potentially unlock secrets that are here either on Earth, your example of the Great Pyramid, or even perhaps on Mars in the Jezero Crater? I would guess yes. Well, let me interject a personal point of privilege here because when I was growing up, from grammar school through high school, I was absolutely befuddled by why they kept giving us, particularly when I was in, in grade school, so many damned IQ tests. Mm. It's like almost every other week we had, you know, we actually, one level, we loved it because it wasn't, you know, classroom work. It was different. But at the other level, it was a test. And they did it again and again and again. And, of course, looking back from the hindsight of, you know, decades – I realized, kind of like that NBC television show, The Pretender, they were looking for people. They were looking for certain talents and proclivities and, and, and uh, interests and all that. And, of course, I was totally rejected because I'm such a rebel and revolutionary. I would make a horrible member of any government <laughs> team. So they, they passed me over, kind of like Passover, but they gave us the damn tests. And I think, Andrew, you're right on. They were, and maybe still are, looking for those few that can be invited inside to yeah. be the special ones. Well, I know they do. I, I know they do that in code breaking. Uh, so in code breaking, they always try for that to try to find talent. Hmm. And you can find the history of World War II where they were. Working on ciphers. Well, that whole group, the the magic group and Friedman and all that. I mean, yes. that gets into some very. De- Did you ever get deeply into that? Only in the terms of reading, like everyone else did, the books that were available after the war. Um, that was no, I I wasn't personally involved in that type of material. Okay. Are you? I have a thought. Yes, Ron. Go ahead. If. Uh, this putative other group. And I'm thinking that a lot of this stuff are shots in the dark. You know, that we are, um, are we talking uh, terrestrial groups or extraterrestrial? 
all of them, what they're doing is uh, may not be directed or focused as, as well as we think it is, or it's just different. I mean, nobody's ever come up with a better uh, metaphor for the situation than Charles Fort and his um, warm and fuzzy remarks that we are just cattle. Because um, what do you do with cattle? Uh, you make sure they got a salt lick and a pile of hay over in the corner, and then they won't give you any trouble. Uh, and so if there's anything exceptional about them, and this is where we have to take it beyond cattle because you don't usually do anything with cattle except eat them. Um, the, um, if they're looking for special talents, it's more likely that it's on our side than on theirs. I don't think that the, I don't think that the outside, I'd call them the overseers, just on the basic model that uh, this is property and uh, there are people that feel like they're in charge of it. And then we have our normal perversion of humanity, which is known as bureaucracy, which are people that insert themselves in the middle. They want to be the, uh, they want to be the channel through which this uh, overseeing is done and get all our ruling classes and everything else. And that engenders a whole bunch of uh, <clears throat> creation of mythology and histories and religions, uh, every, every organizational thing they can come up with. And we're coming up with that, not somebody else, because as far as the else's are concerned, you know, we're just here as long as we're not causing too much trouble uh, that's but wait, 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 wait. There, and this is where I kind of depart from Fort. Fort assumed a monolithic other. They no, own, he didn't. Well, they own us. We're their property. But who is the there? If there are factions, if there are the pirates, and there are the guardians, and then above them there's other levels of bureaucracy – who actually is interacting with Homo sapiens and who is treating us like cattle and who is treating us as something more? Uh, well, in a sense, they're all treating us like cattle. But the, um, I mean, let me ask you this about pirates. I know that I, I, I sparked on this when the. Oh. Ron, you there? Ah, they, oh, I muted myself. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, <laughs> When the two, when you and Daryl brought up the word pirate, uh, you know, name a good pirate. Okay, Sir you know, Francis Drake. Have, I mean, it does. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. Who? Sir Francis Drake. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Johnny Depp. Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Let's go. To, uh, well, I, I remember his. Uh, his Sir Walter his famous, Raleigh. Famous catch. Uh, no, he was a buccaneer, was he not? Is there really a distinction with the difference there? Yeah, Buccaneer works for the Crown, taking out pirates. Privateer, and, yeah. you know, or privateer. Yeah, I think he was a private. I think he was a privateer. Uh, the uh, pirates are in it for the pirates. You know, I mean, think of the since you brought up those actually very good movies, especially the first three. Um, you know, it's just like the Pirates Code. Mm -hmm. uh, these be more like guidelines. <laughs> Remember that um, Jeffrey Rush's comment, or um, uh, or Johnny Depp saying, "I'm a pirate." That's what pirates do, <laughs> which he said several times. Uh, you know, I don't think that's I don't think they're a trustworthy asset on either side. And as far as the reason I said that there's lots of them is that uh, lots of factions 
is that Fort makes it clear that there's an, there are numerous groups struggling over the uh, reins of ownership. You know, he doesn't take it farther than that, but he's, uh, you know, he makes it clear. It's obvious that there's more than one faction out there. Question is, what do they want from us? All this bit with the testing? Uh, yeah, I'm one of those two. You know, I was getting, uh, we had to take it. We had to take tests to get into the kindergarten of the school I went at, went to. Uh, they were they were screening 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 all the time, mm. and you know I don't know what they're I don't know what they're looking for, but uh, well they, I uh, feel like a bass being thrown back <clears throat> anyway. You <laughs> we, know yeah Richard, I know the Richard, feeling. Richard, yes, there's a, there's a funny angle here with some um, buccaneers yeah. and the whole topic of pirates. Well, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, buccaneers are still pirates, right? Right. Um, and they won the Super Bowl this year. Oh, how interesting. The Super Bowl was so emphasized. The, most of the commercials in the Super Bowl had to do with astronauts, flying cars, you name it. Go and look. Go and YouTube it. it the whole focus was advanced technology, aliens, meeting them, a whole bit. Women in space. It, it was extraordinary. And the Buccaneers won. It's, it's just interesting could be an accident but it was very interesting <laughs> well remember what fdr said in politics and this is politics even if it's et politics there are no such things as coincidences yeah Arr. it happens by accident <laughs> hey guys Yarr. we are we are at the bottom of the hour <clears throat> when we come back um I'm, I'm presuming that tim is rapidly coming up to speed and will join us for some very interesting new discussions and revelations we're going to take all all this entire conversation to jezero crater daryl on mars and i'm going to show you a stunning use that term very advisedly a stunning redundant connection between where nasa is tonight and the great plateau the the giza plateau the great pyramid there in egypt and uh you can't get any more at the cutting edge than that so we'll be back in a couple of minutes you are on the other side of midnight my name is Richard C. Hoagland with a cast of thousands and a mystery who were the builders we shall return Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. 
search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. everyone to the other side of midnight here in the land of enchantment it is 1230 here in the high western deserts in the background we hear the intonations of Paul Horn who got to do this extraordinary thing chant and resonate and play a flute in the king's chamber of the incredible archaically astonishingly old king's chamber of the great pyramid at Giza. So what I want to do now is I want to take everyone from Giza, the Giza Plateau, to Mars. And for that, you're going to have to go back to the other side of midnight at our URL. We're going to click on the banner that will take you for tonight's show to uh, the uh, Sunday night, uh, Monday morning. To the guest page, and you're going to click on my items under the banner there, and you're going to scroll down to item number seven, lucky tetrahedral number seven, because this is a um, ESA, a Mars Express image taken from orbit by the European Space Agency of Jezero Crater there on Mars. There are several versions of this image. There's a NASA version uh, shot by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Frankly, The Europeans in their portrayal of stuff in space have been more accurate. Their imagery of Sidonia is far more accurate than NASA's weirdly, bizarrely inconsistent imagery over the last couple, three decades. So this is an ESA image. It's oriented so that north is up, east is to the right, west is to the left, and south is at the bottom. As I was looking at this after the landing, and we're looking at all various aspects and trying to figure out is there a dome over this place or is there not and what's in it that you would want to protect from a dome. I was drawn to some rather interesting features located toward the southern edge of the crater inside the rim, the crater wall, which you can see is an arc there toward the bottom of the image. If you go now to number eight, this is an enlargement of this section rotated 180 degrees so North is now at the bottom, and south and the crater rim are at the top. And what I noticed were these large standalone structures and the organization of a complex encompassing two sets of them, one on the right made of large objects and a smaller grouping on the left. But first of all, As I looked at this, I thought, oh, my gosh, because that geometry looked incredibly 
familiar. Didn't take long to realize what I was looking at, which will take us now to image number nine. Number, number nine, number nine. If you overlay the geometric pattern of the three large pyramids on the Giza Plateau, the Great Pyramid, or Khufu, the Middle Pyramid, or Kephrin, and the Smaller Pyramid, which is known in Greek as Mycerinus, um, you'll notice that the geometry and the southern end of the Jezero crater on Mars is identical. Look at the overlay. Is identical to the geometry of the layout of the three main pyramids at Giza. And then if you go to the next level, which is number 10, now you're going to look at the image of the structures on the left, not the big guys on the right, but the ones on the left. And you can see I've oriented now the uh, Giza pyramids in the inset in yellow on black. Next to it is the inset of the belt stars in the constellation of Orion, who my friend and colleague Robert Bavall many, many years ago associated in what's called the Orion alignment theory with the belt stars of Orion. There are three stars, uh, two of which are in a line, and the third is offset from that line. And the offset <clears throat> is almost exactly the same offset as the three main pyramids, starting with the Great Pyramid at Giza on the Giza Plateau. That same geometry applies with stunning accuracy to what we find at the southern end of the Jezero crater on Mars. And it's not present just once, it's present twice. Remember, the way you communicate a message is redundancy. Redundancy, redundancy, redundancy. Or you say it several different ways so you wind up with the same message. Um, in the Baval model, um, if you look very carefully at the details of the layout of these two sets of what I call Giza templates, one, an actual one-on-one -on -one template, the one, the smaller grouping on the left, and the larger template on the right that appears to be, for some reason, a mirror image of the Giza geometry and the smaller pyramids on the left. The only way that I can kind of reconcile what's going on here is to look at the actual motions of the stars in the Orion Belt model that are involved. So that means you click on item 11. This is now a gorgeous color image uh, taken by an amateur here on Earth. I don't remember his name at the moment. And on the right, you'll see the star that corresponds to the smaller pyramid on the Giza Plateau in Baval's model. This is called Mintaka. The middle one is called Analim, and the one on the far left is called Alnatak. And they're all um, almost a thousand or more light years away. And even though they have reasonable space motions, they're so far away that even over the time scale of tens or hundreds of thousands of years, they move very little. And I put up a graphic the other night one of our earlier shows a couple of weekends past showing the movements of the constellation of Orion and the constellation itself all around 
these belt stars moves in various directions. But these three maintain this configuration with extraordinary fidelity over an immense period of time. And if you look on the right, you'll see there's a little arrow extending to the uh, bottom left from Mintaka. And there is a series of yellow, green, blue, and white lines extending in the upper right. And then they grade into a dotted white line. And the entire length of that line to the star is about a million years. This is how far in space, if you viewed from Earth a million years ago, you would have seen Mintaka move. And because the stars are all in similar distances, a thousand or more light years away, and are moving in roughly the same directions, this configuration would maintain itself for at least about a million Earth years. The red arrow is the length projected into the future of 100,000 years where Mintaka is going to move uh, in a million years from now. So reeling the film backwards, um, the yellow line, the green line, the blue line, the white line, that takes us back to about 450,000 years in the past, which takes us to item number 12, because item number 12 is the same as item number, uh, what is it, 9 or 10. Um, let me look here. Uh, it is, in fact, number 10. Okay. And if you project the actual motions of the Muntaka star onto the geometry of the layout of the Jezero structures or pyramids, you can see that if you reel the clock backwards, as you run the film backward, the starting point for when these objects were created matches eerily where the proper motion of Mintaka would have taken the star backward in time around 450,000 years for the grouping on the right, the big guys, and around 300,000 years for the grouping on the left, which mirrors the geometry to an eerie degree of the Great Pyramids uh, there on the Giza Plateau. Now, why is, are these numbers important? Because our independent dating of Sidonia, remember the alignment of the Earth rising over the face on Mars, the first astronomical alignments I ever did with the Mars material decades ago, is in exactly the same time frame between 450,000 years and around 300,000 years ago. So this brings us to a very interesting uh, set of potential implications. The size of the complex on the right, what I call the mirror image of Giza, is staggering. Each of these pyramids on the right and then the one representing Mintaka are on the order of between 4 thousand and five thousand feet across in other words a mile they're the same size as the pyramids in the city at Sidonia and the same size as the DNM pyramid to the south and the same size as the face on Mars itself the smaller version on the left there in this image they're a little more reasonable they're around uh, 2,000 to 2,500 feet across, let's say half a mile, 
okay? And they're arrayed in the exact geometry of the pyramids at Giza and the orientation contemporaneously of the three belt stars in Orion. And why that's interesting is because on Earth, in this time frame, roughly 300,000 years ago, we have a genetic eruption in Africa of something called the mitochondrial Eve, where geneticists have traced back genetically our code, our human code, our homo sapiens code, to a sapient primate in Africa at a roughly the 300,000-year time horizon. It's almost unmistakable and you know impossible to avoid the conclusion that somehow what happened at Jezero was migrated from the southern part of this crater all the way to Earth and duplicated on an even smaller scale on the Giza Plateau with time constants built in, with mathematics and geometry encoding the relationships of the planet to the precession of its motions on its axis, to its motions around the sun, to the eruption of genetic heritage traceable to Homo sapiens. In other words, we're looking in this model at the jumping off place, the transport station of who we once were and what we have become in the transition from Mars to planet Earth. And the floor is now open for vigorous discussion, attacks, criticism, whatever. Well, I have an attack. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, no, I knew just because you said that I had to say that. Uh, the uh, Daryl, I've got a question. Do you really think that the pyramids were built in the fourth dynasty, et cetera? I question it. Um, there is a, a, a discussion. Uh, Herodotus made a comment that he believed that the work that was being done by Khufu on a causeway was as grand a product product as was the pyramid itself, and the fact that the interior of that pyramid is uh, without any of the normal paintings you would expect to find in a royal tomb indicate that it was built for some other purpose than to house the body of a king. Um, well, let's, a, let's it, assume it was a monument. Yeah, okay, let's assume it was a monument then. Yes, I, I, I they did because they, Yeah, because they did that, you know, that's uh, without... Uh, I think it goes further than that, but you know, the, uh, to get caught up in whether it was a tomb or not, since very few of them were tombs anyway. Uh, well, I don't think it was the, a monument as much, Ron, as a machine. These are solid-state torsion field amplifying machines, which is the appropriate time to interject this, because okay. earlier, earlier in the in the evening, when I laid out the precision of the alignment of the geese, of the uh, pyramids with north. Somehow we had a dropout, and nobody in the audience heard that minute or two minutes of explanation, so I'm going to do it again. If you assume, because of the precision, Daryl, that you've measured in the pyramid, that that five-arc minute deviation from true north is not an error or the, the problems of 
building in, in limestone, etc., but in fact, an error introduced by physical motions of the rotation of the African plate on the crust, on, on the mantle of the planet Earth, and you reel back the clock, <clears throat> and this was based on a calculation I made that stemmed from a 1973 paper where some geodesists were trying to date the Great Pyramid and the Giza complex using plate tectonics as a kind of internal clock. And they stopped their calculation because they quickly realized that the motions within the historical period, you know, the first dynasty, second, that kind of thing, did not work. Pyramids are much, much older based on running back the clock, just like I did with the proper motions of Mintaka. Because if you forget the pyramids themselves and say that they could have been rebuilt several times on an earlier ground plan, an earlier mega architectural layout for the purpose of mirroring what was in fact the case at Jezero, where the builders came from in this model, humans who came back to Earth from Mars, then everything falls into place because the dating, if you say it's an architectural plan and it's in sync with the rotation of the African plate, if you reel that clock backwards, you wind up with roughly 300,000 years for the plan of Giza itself, which is identical within the errors to the smaller counterpart of Giza that's now sitting tonight enigmatically oriented correctly with the sky at Jezero. I think the next 30 days and the information we are about to learn will change how we view ourselves and the world and the universe around us. Well, maybe some of us. (laughs) Richard, I know we're getting close to the end and I don't want to... Not only around us, Daryl, but within. Because the big question here that Richard's poking at, and now we're running out of time, is why is the larger complex mirrored? It's a mirror. How, what, what does that mean? Like, we, we've been going, like, I, I'm still baffled by this. Like, Richard, do you want to explain? Like, like this is. A, well, to me, it marks, and Daryl, follow me if you can, and Brian, help him if, if you need to. It indicates to me a AD and BC, a juncture, a rupture of the calendar, that before the smaller guys were built, things were going in a certain direction, in a certain evolution, in a certain development. And these are incredibly ancient structures because if you look at the erosion of the complexes and you look at the dating I did at Sidonia, we're talking like half a million years, which even under vanishingly thin atmospheric models by NASA is a hell of a long time to maintain big, big structures, which I think is a doorway, Daryl, to what you've discovered on the Giza Plateau. If you want to have something that lasts for the ages, that outlasts all perishable media, trivial things like books and tapes and discs and crystals and whatever, you build it massively in stone, which erodes the least under planetary conditions 
of anything we can conceive of creating. I mean, look at mountains. They last for geological periods of time. If you want to build a time capsule that communicates a message, a story, a narrative, a history for future generations, thousands of which are yet unborn, you do it in massive structures and you lay them out on planets to be observed eons or millennia later. And the reason I think that it's mirrored, and this is going to sound really kooky to an awful lot of people, I think that demarcation between the big representation of Giza on the right and the smaller representation on the left on Mars at Jezero is because somehow the planet, maybe the entire solar system, went through a mirroring chirality dimensional shift. Question is, was it by accident? Was it a byproduct of an incredible interplanetary war fought with torsion weapons, which literally can wrench space-time into shreds and put it back together? Or does it indicate it was done intentionally, kind of like the Phantom Zone in the Superman you know, mythos? Have we been intentionally imprisoned in our own dimensional version of the phantom zone and these pyramids on Mars and their duplication on Earth and the fact that you constantly see these massive monuments both at Teotihuacan in Mexico and the Xi'an pyramids with the same geometry in China. Are you listening, Beijing? They all were surrounded at one time by water, which indicates a mirror and the meta-message the reality we are currently experiencing as a mirror image of what came before, or in other words, as above, mirrored is what is below. You have another aspect of this mitochondria you're talking about. These, this is in our evolution, and this is actually symbiosis. We, we can't really survive without them. They're part of us, and we're part of them now. You're so talking about the guys upstairs, right? I'm talking about the mitochondria. You mentioned ah, okay. 300,000 years ago. Okay. So this is a point around 300,000 years ago when one entity decided to come into one of our cells, and we allowed it, and it became a symbiosis. And they, they offer us energy. It's a form of releasing our energy in our body and so on. So we actually evolved that symbiosis it exists mm-hmm. that symbiosis some people say the mitochondria communicate maybe this is the key point this is the force in star wars maybe it's the universal consciousness when they connect up maybe it's what makes us connect in a different way so it is a very interesting subject we've done a show about this uh, a couple of years ago but that, that's an interesting point so i think humanity on this planet would have evolved at that point as you say I think in terms of the monuments, I think we obviously have two, two representations of Orion here. And not only is it mirrored, the larger one is obviously a, a previous older civilization. The newer is possibly a devolved. That's my reading, yes, yes. And it's not only the rotated around 90 degrees as well. So could that also be a mark, both these monuments 
Well, hang on, hang on. No, 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 hang on, hang on, because it's not 90. It's 30 degrees. The alignment of the big guys on the right and the alignment of the big guys on the smaller model on the left, 30 degrees, which, by the way, Daryl, is the exact latitude of the Giza Plateau pyramids. Exactly. 30 degrees. Um, it, it, I, I, I don't want to talk about some things. I feel uncomfortable about talking about them, but there is a mystery in the old texts, and it's hard to understand. But the relationship has to do with the origin of humanity. And I really don't want to discuss it too depth. This because it is a religious item, and I would probably offend uh, more people than I care to offend, but mm. I believe humanity is is pretty special. You know what I mean? And we have a, I think we have a role to play in the future, and I think that's going to become very apparent. And... I hate to say it, but isn't that what everybody always says? <laughs> uh, it may be, but that's, it's better than to Down think through history. I think it's better to think that than what uh, f- of Charles Ford's meant when we were cattle. I don't believe that we're chattel. I don't never have and never will. But Daryl, 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 science is not about belief. It's about evidence. You know, I don't care what you believe or I believe or anybody. I want to find the evidence. I have now found two stunning connections between Mars and Giza. One is this at Jezero. That's new. That's in the last you know, few, few weeks. The earlier one was the latitude of the Giza Plateau pyramids and the Sphinx and the latitude of Sidonia and the face and the DNM pyramid on Mars because one is the reflection of the sine and the cotangent of the other. And the odds against that, I calculated once, were like 7,000 to one. So someone redundantly has been saying with these massive Martian monuments, look here, here is your origins, here's how you became what you are and have turned heaven and earth, that may not be just a cliche, to keep us as a species from knowing. And as you said a moment ago, Daryl, we could be within days of that cover-up in pieces with the Chinese sitting on the plains of utopia tonight waiting for something because we have no images why not uh richard there's an excellent piece of evidence uh that i i should stick it in before the show's over the uh mark laner's research for the are people oh yes uh, yes 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 i wonder if daryl's even aware of that yeah that's relatively recent and the uh, they started by measuring and laying out the original positions of the cornerstones for the Great Pyramid. And uh, so they got that accomplished. But then they noticed something that subsequent to that, the entire structure was shifted about two and a half inches. I mean, rotated about two hundred two and a half inches. Uh, and so a correction was introduced after the cornerstones. That kind of reinforces the idea that they were rebuilt various times. Oh my gosh, guys. We are running out of time. (laughs) (laughs) There are more secrets to be found about the Great Pyramid and tune in tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not actually tomorrow. We have to wait till next week. But uh, yes, there's a lot going on. 
And unfortunately, we have no more time tonight to uh, to regale everybody with this. But I guarantee you, next Sunday night, we're going to all meet here. Seconds. We're all going to meet here at the same time and the same bad channel. And we're going to do this all again with new information. And lo and behold, we may actually have data from the Chinese. I want to thank all my guests this morning, Daryl Gusson, his nephew, Brian. Thank you so much, Brian. Ron Gerbron, Andrew Curry, Tim Saunders, Kintia, and Keith. And um, again, next weekend. I can't say what's going to happen Sunday, but Saturday night is going to be one hell of a show because we may, in fact, have data from the Chinese mission to Mars. So until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone, and keep looking 